You're listening to The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, bringing class to trash since All right, everybody. Welcome to the GGTMC. We are live. We are in living color, and uh, we feel very black and white. That is uh, <laughs> that is uh, the truth, and that's the way we're going to stick with it. Uh, anyway, we are actually back. It's the day after Halloween um, as we record the morning after, and. Uh, we are here to talk about a couple films uh, from some classic film folks. Mm-hmm. We're going to discuss Dr. No, uh, directed by Terrence Young, 1962, the, the original James Bond film. And uh, the timing couldn't be better slash worse Yeah, uh, with uh, the passing of Sean Connery yesterday or Friday. I don't know if he died on Halloween or the day before. but uh, I don't know. Yeah. Um, 90 years of age, he passed away, so it kind of works out really good. Uh, well, yeah, A bizarre piece of uh, serendipity there. <laughs> yeah. It's super marketing. No. Uh, again, <laughs> it's it's one of those things where I, you're I'm just, sure uh, it will be seen that way. Yeah, yeah. It might be seen that way, yeah. Oh, well. Um, uh, yeah, oh, well. I mean, you know, it, it's, it's, we, we talked about him not too long ago with Outland, right? So, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so on the, but I've been wanting to talk about Dr. No for some time because... I went back and watched it not too long ago and realized a lot of modern, you know, like, I mean, it's not, it's not a, it's not going to blow people away when I say this, but a lot of modern action movies take their cue from Terrence Young and Dr. No. That's mm-hmm. the, just something I kind of want to discuss and just kind of talk about. So that's one of the reasons. And then the other reason is it's, uh, you know, it's just Dr. No. And then uh, we're going to do Frenzy from 1972, little Alfred Hitchcock, which we don't cover a lot of Hitchcock on this show. So yeah. it's not one of those things. Matter of fact, I'm trying to think if we've covered any. I can't think of any. No. Have you ever done The Birds, maybe? Nope. Not nope. Psycho? Nope. Then I can't think of any. Nope. Nothing. Not, not the big ones either. No, no North by Northwest. No 
rear window, no, no vertigo, no, no vertigo, no nothing, no. Dial in for murder, rope, nothing, nothing, nothing. How about no. that? No, I'm popping a cherry here. <laughs> yeah. So that's what we'll be discussing this week. Um, and that'd be the what is that word? Pentumplet? Pen penuplet? Pentumplet? Penultimate? Pentumplet? Pentumplet? You're in the ballpark. Yeah, yeah, I'm in there. It's a little early for asking for a big word like that. Oh, dude. Even asking is... myself, yeah. <laughs> Even asking myself for a word that big is not a good thing. Um, but yeah, the the film before the the last thing before the the thing before the last thing. There we go. Yes. So, and uh, some would argue his last. Uh, uh, well, I don't know if they would argue his last great movie, but they would certainly argue his last good movie. Mm. Although I. I find some things endearing about Family Plot, uh, which I don't know if we'll ever cover, but, you know, anyway. Um, so that's what we're doing. Uh, let's get into what we've been watching, which is usually Todd's time to shine because Yay. I watch very little. <laughs> but I, I did watch a couple things, but I'll talk about them in a little bit. So go ahead, Todd. Good deal. Uh, okay. So... Uh, I dove into a rewatch of The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, uh, which is a little Western. Most people, Never heard um, of it. I'm waiting for it to get rediscovered at yep. some point. Never heard of um, it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. It's one of those unsung deals. Uh, and Hang on, i got to blow my nose. I'm sorry. <laughs> Don't know what's coming up. That was a good one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh my lord! Terrible. But uh, yeah, no, I watched it. Um, I watched it this time with uh, with commentary by Tim Lucas on the uh, Kino Lorber uh, disc and uh, the theatrical version uh, oh. because I really do not care for the extended version. Um, but I mean, yeah, there's. Man, what the hell can you say about this thing that hasn't been said? Uh, you know, in in a in a very short amount of time. Yeah. Um, well, it is, we can say I'll say one thing. I think I said it when we did a review of it. Uh, Lee Van Cleef eating that eating out of that wooden bowl in the beginning. Oh, that would drive you nuts. That that well, not only that, but that is the most devious eating scene. <laughs> like you just know this rat faced looking bad guy is up to no good. Yeah, indeed. And it's uh, it's it's a great. And that moment. stew looks fucking gross. I don't know what the it fuck's does. in it. There's it the yellow kind of whatever the fuck it is. I don't yeah. know if it's a potato or peppers or what the fuck. But yeah, it looks like peppers mostly. Yeah, right. It's but like I, I see that of, and I'm just like, ah. Oh. It's like a whole bowl of pepper soup. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was a big thing back in the in the old west. Hey man, you get you got to go um, what you got to do. You know. Yeah, but uh, this is you know the kind of the definition of how to do an epic. Um, mm. And something that certainly Leone would expand on massively, yes. Uh, in uh, in just what two years? Yep. Um, but uh, yeah, this is a this is one of those movies that just I I, I don't know how you cannot love it. Uh, if and if you do, or if you don't, uh, I I don't know how to convince you to uh, yeah. to get into it because I mean it it is everything that uh, that a western should be. It I, I will say this about that it does tend to sag in the middle for me a mm. little bit. Mm. Yeah. Uh, there are moments that uh, that seem a little bit too tangential mm. uh, to the uh, the main story. But at the same time, I mean, everything comes together so magnificently by the end. that And that ending, I mean, how can you argue with that? Uh, one of the 
best uh, showdowns possibly ever, yeah. if not ever, um, in the entire uh, history of cinema. Uh, and it's just, it, it looks fantastic. It's so well done, well acted, well well everything. Uh, so it's the good, the bad, and the ugly. So there you go. Uh, let's see. I did a watch of this little movie called The Rhythm Section, starring one Blake Lively. Um, and, uh, Jude Law, and it is, uh, directed by Reed Morano, and I believe it is based on a series of books. Uh, so it's basically about this, uh, this woman who, uh, her family is killed, uh, by a terrorist in the, uh, in a, uh, airplane bombing, and, she wants revenge, so she basically becomes a uh, uh, an assassin, uh, more or less. But um, it, it, I, one of the things that I like is that it doesn't quite go at it as cleanly as as you would expect something like this to go at it, uh, and it's it's not like a perfect action movie where she's instantly, um, you know, goes from being you know a junkie prostitute to being you know uh, James Bond. Uh, to reference this week's show, mm. but at the same time, it kind of also does. Uh, you don't fully believe, or at least I didn't fully believe that at the end, um, that she just, you know, she does some things that are a bit out of, uh, out of what we've seen before. And I also don't particularly care for the whole thing about, um, I found this kind of funny that, um, Jude Law actually says to her, oh, so you were, you were, uh, a junkie and, and everything else because your family died. He goes, and he said, he says to her that that's basically a cliche. And I'm like, well, yeah. And we've spent what over a third of the movie, uh, dwelling on the fact that she's this cliche. So I, I didn't quite understand, uh, where he was going with that. Hmm. Um, uh, but that being said, uh, I also don't particularly like that. You know, it, it's one of these movies where, because we have to do this thing now where uh, action heroes can't just go in and kill bad guys. They have to have some um, some pangs of morality about it. Um, and, you know, her being, you know, somebody off the street, they, they make this big to-do about her not being able to do the job that she says she so, 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 so wants to do, which I found kind of annoying. But at the same time, um, it's not bad. Uh, you know, Blake Lively is, is good in it. Um, she is, uh, kind of doing her, uh, Charlie's Theron sort of thing where she uglies herself up, uh, so that people will take her seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's good. Uh, it's good. It, it, it didn't knock my socks off. Would I want to see another one? No. So yeah, whatever. Uh, but it was okay. Um, let's see. I went from that to a viewing of scream and scream again. And holy shit, I was unimpressed, uh, with this thing on the first time watch. I think it was the first time watch. And if it wasn't the first time watch, it just shows you how forgettable this thing is. Uh, I think it's kind of pathetic that, um, Vincent Price, uh, Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee all show up in this thing, even though, uh, Cushing is at least spared, uh, only appearing in like one scene. um, but the movie itself is so uh, bizarre. 
that it, it crawls up its own ass with the uh, with what it's uh, what it's trying to do and how it's trying to do it more than anything else because it's so ensconced in that set in that uh, late sixties um, psychedelia sort of thing uh, that it really just it, it gets uh, it gets way carried away. Uh, there's like a um, Christ. It must be like a good ten minute fucking chase uh, in the middle of this thing that just stops this dead in its tracks. Uh, you kind of sort of think that it's a an anthology movie because everything in it is so um, disjointed and uh, disparate that um, you know it's it's just not, it doesn't quite come together. And then when it does come together, you're just like, are you fucking kidding me? In this sort of um, bizarre uh boys from brazil sort of uh scenario that they get going on um it's not particularly uh scary it's not particularly atmospheric aside from well i mean i guess unless unless you consider uh being a, a filthy stinking hippie uh in britain um being uh atmospheric um which i guess some people do but hey what do you want from me but yeah, uh, I uh, man, I wanted to like this thing because uh, I love watching Vincent Price do his stuff, and he's really kind of the centerpiece out of the three, um, the three icons uh, that are in this thing. Um, <laughs> My daughter just snuck in here for a second and said, "You got to go upstairs <laughs> and go to bed, darling." <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, scream and scream again. Uh, I, yeah, I was really unimpressed with it. I, I didn't care for it. I would not recommend it to people. Um, and uh, yeah, so there's that. Uh, and then I moved from that to uh, 2020's Gretel and Hansel from Mr. Osgood Perkins. And uh, I, I kind of, uh, I kind of enjoyed this uh, to a, a, a good amount. Um, it's uh, it has uh, Sophia Lillis in it, who is really uh, becoming uh, a really fine uh, young actress, uh, in my opinion. And it has her playing off of Alice Creek, who is fantastic uh, as the uh, the witch. Um, and that's really kind of a lot of what the movie is: is just the two of them going back and forth uh, as Creek kind of. Uh, draws the string in so to speak uh between uh, between Sophia Lillis and her uh, her brother um and the movie is kind of like uh it's kind of like one of these uh, Robert Eggers sort of uh, a movie but crossed with uh something a little more traditional uh, I guess you could say um I mean, obviously, it's dealing a lot with uh, with uh, female issues and you know this whole empowerment thing, and uh, obviously that's why the uh, the title is the way that it is instead of being Hansel and Gretel as we're used to. Um, and it, uh, it it it's interesting in that in that aspect. Um, does it fully work? No, uh, no, it doesn't. But at the same time, I mean. Uh, it looks fantastic uh, in an almost um, Panos Cosmatos sort of way uh, in, in certain respects. Uh, it has that sort of visual flair here and there, uh, I think. And the movie is uh, is entertaining, um, and it just looks lived in. 
and uh, yeah, no, I was I was pretty impressed with this one. I like Osgood Perkins, um, although I know I'm a little bit more of a writer rather than a director, because uh, I don't I don't think that he's directed anything else. I may be incorrect about that, and if I am, I apologize. Uh, but yeah, no, uh, caught that one, liked it, uh, would recommend. Yeah, he's uh, uh, he's done something else, and I can't remember what it is. I, well, I know he's done The Black Code's Daughter, but I think he only wrote that. Yeah. But I might be wrong. I might be wrong about that. He's been making a name uh, for himself, uh, Anthony Perkins' son. Indeed. Uh, uh, but yeah, no, this was a, this was a good one. Which uh, tangentially, maybe, theoretically attached to Hitchcock this week, sort of? Uh, there you go. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Somewhat. A little bit. Uh, yeah, he was an actor first, but uh, yeah, Gretel Hansel, an episode of The Twilight Zone. Oh, he did a I Am the Pretty Thing That Lives in the House. Oh, see, I haven't seen that one. And he has done The Black Coat's Daughter. He did direct that, so. Did he? Okay, yeah. okay. So. Uh, yeah, no, I really like that one. Yeah. Um, he's making a name for himself, so he's, yeah. Yeah, yeah. he's getting out there. So, yes. Uh, so, yeah, if you haven't seen Gretel and Hansel, I would uh, I would go recommend that one. I uh, did rewatch of uh, uh, Cat People, 1982, from Mr. Paul Schrader. Um, yeah, this is pretty perverse. <laughs> uh, all things being equal. Yeah. And, um, yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it always, it always surprises me how, how it's, it's this weird sort of tightrope walk that this movie does between being, uh, just a, a, a cornucopia of Schrader's obsessions and just an all out, you know, kind of gore sleaze kind of movie. Uh, because it really is walking a fine line and it does it for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I, I'm always kind of shocked by just how gory this thing is. Cause it's, there's a lot of fucking gore in it. Yeah. Uh, and there's a lot of effects work, um, which I wonder, is really impressive. I wonder what the gore stuff, I wonder if he was really kind of made to put that in there because oddly, <laughs> I don't know because there's so much of it that you know yeah. you would kind of almost think that there's there's so much and, and the, for the amount of planning you would have to do I kind of think to myself that no uh he was uh, he was in on it because you know it just it, it's a little too much to just be a studio mandate I mm. think. Mm. Yeah, he's uh he's not really And he's not afraid of gore. I mean, look at Taxi Driver. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that has more to do with Scorsese though than him. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, point. he's not afraid of. He's certainly not afraid of adult themes and no, no. and darkness. But if you look at his filmography, gore is it really is a standout because gore is not the. It's not something that I think of when I think of Paul Schrader. <laughs> right? No, it's not. It's not. Violence it's, is. Violence is certainly an underlying violence is is the main theme. Like these mm-hmm. these people wound tight waiting to explode yeah. Yeah, i yeah. mean that's paul schrader in a nutshell but and he you know i i'd read i have the movie i've never watched it the uh, willem defoe nicholas cage movie dog eat dog okay. uh, and i've been told that it has a moment of violence that's uh in the beginning that's uh unlike anything he's ever filmed but i, I because it's gory and things like that and i remember thinking well i guess the people who reviewed this movie never saw cat people <laughs> which oddly has gore in it as well as a horror film so i don't under, i don't understand that but yeah yeah is his uh it feels like his uh what i've always liked about schrader and i think we both like this about schrader 
is you feel Schrader in his films. Like you feel yeah, his yeah. his pathos, his uh his uh, you know, whatever you want to call him. Well you can kind of see his psyche on screen in a lot of ways. Yeah. yeah. His picadellos, whatever you want to call yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, you know, there's just not a lot of filmmakers left like that because I think a lot of filmmakers nowadays make things for I think we're going through a phase and I I don't want to downplay this, but I think we're just going through a phase of commercial filmmakers for commercial filmmakers sake and to get stuff made and i think we'll like all things everything's cyclical so i think eventually we'll get back to filmmakers who have obsessions like brian de palma oh. and paul schrader and i certainly hope so and i think there are there are there are certainly i think a few guys out there uh not yeah, there's a few but the, but again we go back to that argument about um you know whether it exists of course it exists uh, but it's whether or not you can see it yeah. readily, yeah. Uh, which I think is the bigger argument that a lot of people, you yeah. know, poo-poo because, you well, know, it, it made us oh, not well, it's out there. You can yeah. get it on the internet. I don't want to sit in front of a fucking computer <laughs> yeah. and search for a goddamn movie. Yeah, it might. It, it probably does exist. It just oh, probably. It, it absolutely does. It probably just exists with people who have less talent than Paul Schrader or Brian De Palma. <laughs> and there's that as well. <laughs> yeah. And there's that as well. Everybody who's got an iPhone now, you know, <laughs> thinks that they could shoot a fucking movie, and I you mean, can't. I'm sorry, you can't. It's still there. I mean, if you look at Scorsese's The Irishman, you can see it. If you look at uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is a film that I didn't love, um, but I liked. Uh, it's as masturbatory as it gets. Yeah, it's it's a. There's a lot of it there. Uh, yeah, man, there's still lots of it. Uh, Robert Rodriguez still does it, although I don't, I haven't seen any recent Rodriguez stuff. But, uh, I can't name the last movie that he did. I don't uh, think. I think the last movie I know. Well, this is weird. This is one of those weird things. No, I, Alita. Yeah, I can say I can name the last movie you saw by him. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what that says about me. I, I see so little. I know more about what Todd sees than Todd does. <laughs> <laughs> That's sad. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, whatever. But um, but I haven't seen Alita. I've been wanting to watch it. I just haven't I got really, around to I it. I like that movie, man. Yeah. It's, it, it gets me every time. I'm like, but I think that if I was to watch it, I bet I could find some Rodriguez stuff in there. Uh, I, I, know uh, I, could. I bet I could. To a degree, to yeah. a degree, yeah. Mm-hmm. But that's my favorite thing about filmmakers in a nutshell is when their personalities kind of peek through. And of course, mm-hmm. we we both championed. Uh, first reformed which is arguably one of the best films of the last year or yeah. so uh and paul schrader did that and so yeah yeah big, no, that was really really good yeah big big recommend from uh, the both yeah. of us on that one so mm-hmm. but uh but yeah no cat people uh you get to see malcolm mcdowell's dick um so there's a plus i guess <laughs> that's funny because I, I i watched something with malcolm mcdowell in it this week was it caligula no <laughs> No, it wasn't. But it was a it, there in, in the scene that he's in. Uh, one of the scenes he's in that they do talk about him uh, not wearing underwear. So there you go. Uh, so yeah, cat people. Um, I, I I like that. I, well, it, I I don't know if I said this before when I I talked about it. I think I did. But this was a movie that uh, I had shied away from uh, up until very very recently, mm-hmm. maybe the past five years. Yeah. Um, because it just it just didn't look like something that was uh, that was up my alley uh, as far as horror movies go. Yeah. And uh, finally, having you know sat down or kind of forcing myself to sit down and watch it, I, I just I'm really impressed with it, uh, yeah. and I'm kind of sad that I didn't um, I didn't jump on this train a yeah. bit earlier. I think a lot of people turned on it because, again, too, I think Cat People the original is kind of beloved. 
It's a beloved film. It's kind of well, sacred. That, that wasn't it for me. I could tell you that. I know, but um, I'm just saying. I think that's one of the reasons. It was one of the early kind of remakes that people kind of right turned on for whatever reason. And what I like about it as a remake is it takes the original, and the original is great for what it is. But it takes the original, modernizes it, and gives us kind of uh, you know that dark sexual slant, which I think the original <laughs> wanted to do. But you know, it was made in the '40s, so you really couldn't get away with that. So I think they're both great in their own way. Oh yeah, yeah, no, they are. Uh, and and speaking of, I mean, remakes. I mean, this would have been right around when uh, the thing came out. So yep. Uh, so you can certainly see, you know, that kind of uh, thing going on. Uh, so yeah, cat people would recommend. Uh, and there's that. I did a rewatch of Confessions of a Dangerous Mind from Mr. George S. Clooney, 2002, uh, starring one Sam Rockwell as Chuck Barris. Um, And, yeah, I mean, this thing is uh, just an absolute blast uh, in so many ways. Mm -hmm. And it's really kind of uh, audacious um, in a stylistic way. And I kind of have to almost think to myself two things here in, in this respect. Uh, number one is that um, I could certainly see why Clooney was willing to uh, to take the chances that he takes with it stylistically because you know coming out of the gates with your first uh, your first movie um, you kind of want to throw everything in there because you don't know if you're going to get to do it again. Although I mean <laughs> I, I don't know if George Clooney really has that kind of uh, the thing rolling around in the back of his head, but I'm sure he does at some, on some level anyway. Uh, and number two, I kind of have to think to myself that a lot of the, a lot of the, uh, audaciousness of the movie comes from the, um, the adaptation by Charlie Kaufman, uh, because this is very, very much a Charlie Kaufman screenplay, Mm. uh, in a lot of ways. Um, you know, very, it gets very, very meta. It gets very interior while it's being exterior. Um, you know, things are are kind of, uh, floating around. It still is very enjoyable while also being very kind of, um, uh, raw, uh, in certain ways and, you know, uh, honest about, uh, about this guy who may or may not be full of shit. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, uh, you know, I'll leave it to you to, uh, to make up your minds about that, uh, whether or not you believe that he was a, a killer for the CIA, the guy who created the gong show or whether he's just, you know, kind of got, um, some issues that, uh, maybe were undiagnosed. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think we kind of talked about that when we reviewed the gong show movie, right? Yeah, 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 we did. We did. Um, but this is, uh, yeah, I, I mean, Sam Rockwell can completely inhabits the role, uh, once again, proving just how incredible uh, a performer he is. And one of these guys who I think still only gets talked about in certain circles, uh, kind of in that, like, um, that weird sort of uh, appreciation circle, or I guess you could call it circle jerk at that point. Uh, where, you know, people talk about how great he is, but at the same time, you don't really see him, you don't really see him get beyond a certain level, right? I mean, most people uh, on the street can't name their favorite Sam Rockwell movie, but uh, Cinephiles, I think, uh, could have an argument about it. Uh, it's, it's just one of those weird things that I find, uh, I find really interesting. 
uh, for better or worse, probably. Uh, for probably, he's making a living, so more than me, anyway. Um, so yeah, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. Uh, I uh, yeah, dig that one. And then, uh, and finally, um, I went and watched. Well, did a rewatch of Rawhead Rex uh, from 1986. <laughs> And I watched it this time with <laughs> commentary, and it did not really improve the movie uh, all that much. Oh. Um, and the yeah, the, the commentary is kind of dry uh, in a lot of ways, and it, it was amazing to me how little they wanted to address how poor the movie is, uh, because it's not good. Um, man. And this was one of those movies that when I was 13, uh, I was in love with, uh, I love, 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 love drawhead Rex. Sure. And watching it, uh, a little bit later on, man, oh man, is that, it's not really good at all. Uh, in so many ways. Um, (laughs) It's so ham-fisted. It's so... Dude, there's so much that could have been done with this movie that just isn't. Uh, it really is just the definition of missed opportunity and wrong-headedness. Uh, to have, you know, Rawhead dressed up like, uh, you know, a castaway from a Judas Priest tour. Uh, yeah. You know, all, all of this shit. I just... Oh my God! Would you, so, um, so Todd's review of Rawhead Rex would be Wronghead Rex. That's right, <laughs> <laughs> Halford Rex. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I mean, I can't. I, the, the, the performances are so. The the movie is so histrionic in its performances. The Verger alone takes the cake uh, for just being this this you know at level eleven sort of um guy who's dude he's a shithead from the beginning uh and then he just becomes more of a shithead and then he gets pissed on and he becomes even more of a shithead mm. uh but <laughs> like he he snapped like every fucking line that he delivers is like snapping at somebody um and then uh yeah uh, I will say this though I mean it, it certainly it uh is not afraid to do certain or break certain taboos that um, that we don't really see a lot of in, uh, in horror movie or cinema in general. Um, and I, I've never read the the uh, book, but I would have to imagine that it's better than the than this thing is. I just think that maybe it was this was probably a case of not being able to um, pull off. Uh, I guess well, what would be the expression? Uh, its reach exceeds its grasp. Uh, in a lot of ways, I think that it just it couldn't do what it wanted to do, uh, and it's just a very very bog standard uh, sort of monster movie uh, that uh, really wants to be something more and isn't uh, in a sort of Quatermassian sort of way, I guess, uh, in certain aspects, or I guess you could call it Nigel Neelian uh, if you really wanted to. Um, and yet I'm still fascinated with the movie. Uh, you know, it's, it, it calls out to me oddly. Um, it's probably the same way that something like escape from LA does in that yeah. you're sitting there thinking to yourself, <laughs> I, I can't be wrong about this. I can't, yeah. I can't, you know, it's, it's gotta be the Halfordness of it at all. You know, that's what it has to be. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> 
Ele- uh, the electric eye, baby. Vengeance, sir. Yeah. Electric um, eye. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, this movie's breaking the law. But um <laughs> But yeah, no, it, it's one of the, like I said, it's one of those things where you're just like I have to I they, they, come on, it can't be as shitty as I'm thinking. And yet it is. Uh and yet I'm still fascinated with it. I'm still like, you know, I would absolutely watch, I would absolutely do a rewatch of this thing again. Uh, just because, um, this weird sort of, it lives in this weird sort of, um, space in my head, uh, for free. It's written. Um, and yeah, uh, I, I got to admit that, you know, after watching it, uh, and with the, uh, the commentary and all that shit and watching the, uh, the great little Steve Bissett, um, uh, featurette on this uh, on this uh, Blu-ray. Um, I was uh, tempted to go and uh, and check out uh, some of the books of blood, which I haven't uh, I haven't read. Yeah. So uh, I didn't I didn't buy them, unfortunately or fortunately, whatever. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, you got to say it. It did what good cinema does. It got me to do something. So at least you could say that much. Yeah. Uh, just you know, I know uh, damning with faint praise. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then otherwise, uh, what, what else did I watch? Uh, not a hell of a lot. Uh, I sat down. I in a complete fit of boredom last night. Uh, I fucking just wound up watching four episodes of New Girl. Uh, <laughs> nice. <laughs> I, I love that show. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> hey man. I, I never judge what people watch. Eh, well, I do, but uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, at the same time, yeah. it's just like, yeah, I don't really, I don't really care what people think of my opinion. That on is the the, uh, the Deschanel show. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 I I don't know what it is, but it's just that is absolute fucking comfort food to me. Yeah. Some people that, love. Some people Gilmore love Girls for that matter. Yeah. Yeah. Some people love that show. Yeah. Oh, dude, I think it's hilarious. I think Gilmore Girls that one makes uh, sense too in a way because that one's a that one's a very that's a that's a show that kind of feels like a hug. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I've always been. Uh, and, you know, I watched a little bit of that back in the day, but I never stuck with it. But it always kind of it always felt safe, like a Hallmark yeah. movie, except not as cheesy. Yeah, yeah, I could see that being. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the whitest movies ever made, the Hallmark movies. <laughs> <laughs> It's like if an African American or any other nationality shows up in a uh, Hallmark movie, it's like uh, <laughs> I don't even want to say it. <laughs> it's just I yeah, won't even go there. Anyway, uh, I didn't watch anything movie was. Um, I started a few things, just couldn't get through them. Uh, so I'll more to come on that. Um, that's the the world I live in nowadays. So you know, um, some things are on pause. Mm. Uh, but I did watch. My son and I did watch the first episode of the New Mandalorian, the season two. Oh yeah, yeah, no, I did watch that. Yeah, yeah, yeah we watched that. Uh, you know what? Uh, for a TV show, a streaming TV show, you really do see the money thrown into, or maybe just the technology. It might not just be the money, right? But me and my son were even talking about it. the special effects in the show are ridiculous. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, CGI is one thing, but I mean, this, this crate dragon thing that they created for this first episode is—I think is what they called it—a crate dragon or crate crepe dragon. I don't know what they called it, but yeah, I couldn't quite make it. I couldn't tell if they I were saying crate or great. Yeah, I don't know what they were saying, but wow. I mean, that thing. I, just when I thought it was pretty cool, uh, coming out of the ground, it goes up a mountain. Yeah. 
And uh, I just thought to myself, this feels more epic than the last two Star Wars films I've watched. <laughs> How about it? And then only like 40-some minutes. Yeah, yeah. And we were just kind of talking about it and kind of getting into it that way. It's it's it was a good episode. It wasn't a great episode. I liked uh, Timothy Elephant and is is yeah, this kind of always. Uh, yeah, is this kind of almost spaghetti western esque yep. character. And I won't kind of give away some plot elements for those who watched it, but there's some uh, nice callbacks to some things, which I think the Mandalorian uh, gives uh, people who love Star Wars or who loved Star Wars, however you want to look at it, a um, a nice little touch of nostalgia kind of callbacks and things like that. And, um, yeah, I enjoyed it. I mean, I, I, I just think the Mandalorian nails what star Wars is way more than star Wars, star Wars does, or at least the last three star Wars films have. I, I do think the prequels at least nail some of what star Wars is, but you know, uh, it's, it's a failed attempt, but it's, uh, at least an interesting one. Uh, the, these last three, well, I haven't seen the last film, but, the last two I watched is just just doesn't just doesn't quite have that feel. Anyway, uh, we enjoy quite a bit of that. We enjoyed that quite a bit. So we'll see how the season goes. Looking forward to yeah. it. Yeah. Some uh, I know some things are coming down the pipe that uh, um, are going to be very cool on that show. Um, and the only other thing I watched, I watched the first episode of the new Nick Frost show, Truth Seekers. The Nick Frost. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I was yeah. I was uh, dancing around that one. Yeah, Edgar Wright produced. Simon Pegg uh, is in it. Uh, although he's not uh, Nick Frost's uh, compatriot, he is in the show. Um, it's pretty fun, and Michael McDowell's in there as Nick Frost's dad, and uh, it's it's pretty fun. It's very uh, it's very Nick Frost. It's very it's certainly in the vein you would expect. Uh, the paranormal stuff. It's a little odd and a little off kilter and. I only watched one episode, but I'm looking forward to watching the whole thing. It's good. It's on Amazon. It's an Amazon original. So, oh, good deal. I would uh, recommend people check it out, at least on the first episode. I, I, I enjoyed it. It's a little dark, but it's also quite comedic and uh, pretty funny. At least I think it's funny. So, you know, teach their own. I didn't do much else, man. I don't know if I have a comic book minute this week. Oh, yeah, I do. I do. Oh, I got a good one. I got a good one. For whatever reason, I decided to go back and read the first five issues of X-Force. Okay. I have no idea why. Uh, just a random bugaboo that just got in my craw and I had to sort it out. And, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've often said on the show, you know, that uh, Rob Layfield, uh, you know, I like his art because it's, of its lifefulness. Ah, uh, yeah, it's it's distinct. But I also know that it's not great um, because of its lifefulness. But mm-hmm. man, going back and looking at those X Force uh, books, those first five, it's rough. <laughs> <laughs> I- <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, even his Juggernaut is rough. But uh, oh, yeah. but yeah, and and that's probably the thing he nails the most. But man, there's some wow. You know. There were certain, yeah, there were certain trends in the '90s that I, I look at them now and I'm just like, why the fuck did that appeal to me yeah. in any way, shape, or form? We loved it, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. Oh my god, yeah. <laughs> and I look, like I said, I look at it now and I'm just like, Jesus Christ, that's awful. I mean, that's just bad drawing. Um, um yeah, but, it's it's, uh, pretty, it's pretty rough. I mean, it. I don't know if it's. I don't know if I'd use the term bad, but it feels certainly it feels amateurish. It feels. 
Because I think Liefeld got better. I just think that not, not uh, a lot better. Not, I don't well, know about that. Well, I think I think he nailed his own stuff better than he nailed the Marvel stuff. I I think the stuff he did at Marvel, I never thought he did very well, and I I never understood why he was such a big deal. Even then, even even though don't get me wrong, I liked it. And you know, I have that first issue of X Force somewhere buried around Listen, his house. The, the cross hatching got so out of fucking hand, dude. The cross hatching. Don't even get me started. It was just it. it, it Nobody it has insane. a face. Nobody has a face. No, like these people in X Force do. <laughs> the <laughs> well, the that's lack the of they're, they're they're so they're fucking these these every head is so fucking broad. Yeah, it's and as the, fucking wide as their fucking shoulders. And here's the thing, but and yet and their features are like these tiny little. Yeah, it's almost like a character. It's almost like a Mister Potato Head. Yeah. Uh, sort of uh, face well, that that all of his characters have. they have a small arch nose they have a yeah a yeah. small mouth yep and for whatever reason it's one of those weird things when you go back and look at it for whatever reason Rob Liefeld had a serious hard on for no pupils and eyeballs <laughs> I just don't think I don't know if he couldn't do it or if he just refused to do it well then again then again it could be that he drew the eyes so fucking small that yeah he couldn't get he the couldn't people in there. there. Yeah. I have a hard time believing that because of the detail of the cross hatching. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're talking the smallest cross hatchings of all time here. I mean, it's amazing. The amount oh, yeah. of cr- I mean, you make that joke, but I mean, I'm just sitting here thinking about some of the stuff I've looked at over the last 5 issues, these 60 pages or 80 pages of comics I've read mm. and gone back to and I hadn't read this stuff since it came out. Okay? And and I I probably own the first 10 issues of X-Force. Uh, in one of these boxes sitting behind me, um, it was never my bag. Uh, it just wasn't. I like the concept of X Force, but I've always found Cable to be a bit of a—I don't know, for lack of a better word—a bit of a bit of a goof. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. He's never really done anything for me. But nope. looking at these nope. Liefeld drawings, he really doesn't do anything for me. He looks like some—he <laughs> looks like a Transformer or. Yeah. Like a transformer. Yeah, perhaps something that f- didn't make the cut for Voltron. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I could see that. I yeah. could see that being the case too. I mean, it's ridiculous. And of course, you know, obviously, when I'm going through and I'm reading and I'm looking at this artwork again, I'm going through and I'm looking at the ankles and the feet and the legs, you know, and and what how dis- he, he, yeah. he refuses to draw them. Yeah, just how disproportionate they are. Well, but that's yeah. not the thing that draw drives me crazy. The thing that drives me crazy. In Lifeo's drawing is the size of the thighs on his characters. <laughs> my yes, God. They all, none of them skip leg day. Oh, my God. The drumsticks are ridiculous. <laughs> and uh, is it Warpath? His rendition of Warpath, I think that's the character. I'm pretty sure the Native American mutant. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Some of the, there is an, there is an image. Yeah, there is some, there are some images of him flying through the air or jumping down on top of something. I'm not even sure if you go back and look at those. I'm not even sure. I, well, I, I'm no. I'm sure they're not anatomically correct. So it's it's pretty it's pretty bizarre, and it is it's just one of those things. It's it's one of those things where you go back and look at it. And don't get me wrong, I love artists who uh, do different things, and and I appreciate Liefeld in that way because he he's certainly unique. Uh, you can't argue that. But you know, and, and I, you know, I've often said on the show, I love Sam Keith. I love Steve Bissett. I love uh, um, who's another one trying to think of off the top of my head uh, bernie wrightson uh, bernie wrightson i love yes uh there's a lot of them i love um 
and uh, I love when they when they kind of get grotesque. I mean, I, yeah. I love that. So you can look at Liefeld's stuff in a grotesque manner, and it 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 makes more sense. But it's well, interesting. Yeah. It's interesting how influential he was, and uh, but and how so many people that he found after he left and went to Image are so much better than he is. And don't get me wrong, I don't think Rob Liefeld listens to the show, but well, you know, he does. You know, uh, apologies, I, I guess. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it is what it is. I mean, his. Um, I'll say this. You know, I don't like it, but at the same time, I kind of do. I don't know what it is. Yeah. Now, now, uh, my review of the X Force book is totally different. I don't like that book. It's not. Uh, it's not good. But for whatever reason, because I never read it, I never read those first. Uh, I think Marvel Unlimited has like uh, maybe the whole run. I don't know, but uh, I'm going to stick with it. I'm not a big X book guy. I think I've said right. that before on the show, and uh, I'm still not. But um, I'm going to stick it out for a little bit, and then maybe okay. go and check out some Excalibur. Okay. Well, Excalibur was fun, and I've I've started getting into the uh, the Peter David X Factor. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, with Larry Stroman, I think, doing the artwork, nice. uh, at least at the beginning there. Nice. So. And I also dug out um, uh, Jeff Johns' uh, JSA uh, run. Jeff nice. Johns and David Goyer, mm-hmm. uh, their JSA run, which I just I found to be really really good uh it's such an old school sort of uh comic book fun sort of way which i always find odd uh when it comes to with uh, with dc because um they generally uh don't tend to be as involving for me uh as the marvel books do but uh yeah no i really dug that one the jsa yeah the uh i think i was reading something off uh uh dc universe what was it called something i never read before and i found it on there i think it's called uh tales of ghost castle hmm. there's only like three issues it's like a horror comic from uh, uh way back 19 the 70s okay I, I don't remember that one at all yeah it's kind of fun it's got sergio aragonis uh, uh art and writing in there nice. it's got some ernie chan Nice. So you'd, you'd, uh, you'd, you'd, I think you'd dig it. But it's, oh yeah, I'd definitely be into that. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Uh, that's one of the fun things about these these services is they're able to give us kind of pristine copies of these comics that you know for whatever you want to say. I mean, don't get me wrong. I used to love going through the back issue bins as much as anybody, but uh, you know, I, I think that world has been dead for a while and, and probably will continue to die if not completely yep. die. And uh, does it suck? Yeah, but also yeah. at the same time, you know, technology is what it is, and it offers me a chance to read tales from the Ghost Castle or tales of Ghost Castle from 1975, you know, in a pristine format. So I can't uh, can't argue that. Only thing I miss is the smell of potentially somebody who smokes cigars who owned it <laughs> or cigarettes. Well, yeah, I mean that that smell of uh, of paper rotting. Uh, and you know, ink on uh, newsprint is really one of the key factors uh, for me. I just I love it. Yeah, it's distinct. Uh, it's there's something about that that just it immediately uh, suckers me in. Um, yeah. It'll with all of that stuff. But. It'll take you right back to your youth if you grew up reading comics, right? Uh yeah, 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 <clears throat> absolutely. All right, um, that's all I got. I don't have a whole lot. Uh, like I said, but I'll try to get the comic book minute in there. We're going to take a short break, come back, and we'll discuss uh, Dr. No, 1962. We'll be back right after this. 
right. How you like that? Not only did I sing it earlier, but I brought it back <laughs> in official form. Yeah, I love that song. Oh my god, I love that album. Yes, yeah, yeah that album is a big part of my youth. There. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just about everything on it, but uh, yeah, man, gotta up here in space. <laughs> you think you private life Ain't nothing of the kind That's right It's like a song uh, I don't know if it's uh, inspired by 1984 Or what it is But it's uh, it's interesting <laughs> Alright, uh, Dr. No 1962 uh, Directed by one Terrence Young uh, A resourceful British government agent no name You may have heard of Yeah Seeks right answers in a case involving the disappearance of a colleague and the disruption of the American space program. Fuck that shit. Yeah. So uh, this had been on the, the docket for us to do for some time. Um, I had mentioned that I kind of wanted to talk about it for a while. Uh, Will came back. Will's not a big uh, James Bond fan. So I've kind of kind of moved it back to the back. Although I do, I would like to hear his take on this movie. Um. But uh, yeah, so we're gonna we're gonna talk uh, some Bond here and see what people think. Um, Todd, what'd you think, Doctor No? That's uh, okay. Eh, end <laughs> review. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. Yeah, it's it's a movie. Um, so yeah, I mean, this is um, this is one of those movies that um, I came uh, well, and I think that most people unless you were there at the very beginning, uh, came back around to, mm-hmm. uh, and certainly from our generation, came back around to the uh, the Sean Connery Bonds because nine out of ten, our first encounter with the character and the series was with the um, the Roger Moore uh, incarnation, which certainly was the case with me. Yeah. Um, but the appreciation then for uh, for what Sean Connery did and the uh, the way that he inhabited this uh, this role. Uh, really comes through, and you could see a lot of what the uh, the series would become, uh, kind of uh, popping up here. Uh, because I mean, as if you think about it, it's it, I mean, okay. So it's dated and it's cliche, but you know, if you could imagine uh, in 1962 seeing the opening of this movie with the gun barrel and Connery firing at the camera and these credits, which are practically off the rails. Um, you know, you know, going from the, the classic, uh, Bond theme to this Caribbean theme music and, you know, and Calypso music and all this other shit. And, uh, you know, and then this carries into the film proper, uh, which, uh, which just flies through its setup. It, it was really kind of breaking boundaries in a lot of way, even though, uh, <laughs> when it, this is, uh, kind of, you know, the grandpa sort of, uh, movie series now, uh, at this point in time. Yes. Um, but at the at, it's your dad's action hero. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, and uh, well, because it, it had a certain conservative bent to it. Sure. Um, Very right wing. Which ways, these things, you know. yeah. Which these things, uh, you know, tend to do. Um, but yeah, I mean, you really have to uh, to place this sort of thing in in the context of uh, what it was doing, specifically this one, or even let's say the first three. Uh, Bond films, uh, mm-hmm. what they were doing and, and what they would do. And I believe you, you had mentioned this. Um, I don't remember if it was off air or on air, but you know how these things would, uh, would carry through to the bigger picture uh, of uh, action films in general. Yeah. Uh, it really is something to be, 
to be uh, lauded for, mm-hmm. I think, in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. So that's the one of the interesting things about it is that first of all, the the movies made Connery. He he was an actor before. Oh yeah, yeah. And he had done some things and a bit of a bodybuilder. He was into bodybuilding a little bit. This was before steroids, so this is when bodybuilding people actually look like human beings. Yep. yep. Uh, instead of uh, superheroes. But he uh, he would uh, you know this would make him and but not not only just that making somebody a larger than life action star and stuff but it would also kind of be the format for so many action movies uh, and it's not like this format didn't exist before there probably is other ones and I'm not thinking off the top of my head but for me the influence of the modern action film really comes from these early Bond p- p- pictures. Uh, I know I sound like an old man. We sound like old men when we say pictures, but you know, uh, it's true. I mean, uh, I just feel like the, the blueprint is there for so many action movies that would come afterwards. And, uh, the way that they would, uh, in a fetishistic way would create heroes, mm-hmm. uh, because bond, uh, you know, he's a character that's so big that, you know, obviously anybody, well, not anybody can play him, but certainly he's the kind of character that people can change over to and you can get different interpretations of a Bond. Like Daniel Craig is a different interpretation of a Bond compared to Timothy Dalton, compared to Roger Moore, compared to George Lazenby, compared to Sean Connery, mm-hmm. going all the way back. Mm-hmm. And one of the interesting things about the Connery stuff is, you know, Connery's a bit of a, you know, he's a bit of a blue collar guy from uh, Scotland. You know, he was not, oh God, yeah. he was not this dapper, um, uh, you know, well dressed, uh, kind of guy. He was already going bald in his early twenties. Yeah. Uh, he's so he wore a wig almost his whole career. Uh, in all the Bond films, he's wearing a hairpiece. And uh, you know, but. They would take him, and because of his look, kind of his arch good looks, and and uh, you know, very strong profile. Um, I thought always, I always think about him. I always think about his eyes and his forehead, and his eyebrows, which are where yeah. his eyebrows had their own character altogether. Yes. Um, but they, you know, they put him in these really nice clothes. They basically turned him into what Ian Fleming was kind of like. This kind of uh, this kind of English gentleman, uh, mm-hmm. except they gave him a. Uh, you know, uh, a gun and, you know, and, and things like that and made him this kind of superhero and stuff. So it's interesting when you go back and look at it the way it is. And of course you can't talk about bomb without talking about, uh, machismo and, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. you know, the fact that he's a sexist character. You can't not talk about that. That is true. Yeah. And that's going to be the majority of what I have to say, mm-hmm. uh, yes. really, uh, because I mean, the movie is, as James Bond, as James Bond gets, um, and you know, while this film uh, and the Bond movies in general could get like they get mean uh, in a lot of ways, they also they tend to maintain an air of sophistication and stoicism uh, that was like innately British, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and you know this was different from the uh, the books, uh, which were a bit grittier uh, than you know obviously. Uh, they were more involved in the the, the workings of, uh, of Bond's mind uh, itself, uh, and it took a hell of a long time for the uh, producers, Cubby, uh, Cubby Broccoli, which I just love saying, um, to uh, to really try to humanize the the Bond character in any significant way. Uh, and for Connery's entire run, he was essentially just an archetype, right? Yes, uh, yes. These movies really, really solidified the idea of the importance of the villain's plan to their success. Uh, 
the the movie success, uh, and that's a large reason that I think we are so forgiving of the lack of depth in the uh, the characters, uh, in a lot of ways with these uh, these movies. Um, it's also interesting that this film, maybe more than a lot of them, really kind of plays up the uh, the mystery or sort of um, uh, police procedural angle. Uh, this is you know this obviously was before the series got really gadget crazy. Uh, yes, I mean, there's yeah. some things here as far as, as like, let's call it tech in quotes, in air quotes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Very little though. Yeah. But it's very, it's very underplayed. Yeah. It's very much a fucking, uh, you know, um, down and dirty, uh, sort of, uh, spy movie more than a lot of the other ones would be. I mean, it still goes big, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's, it's a lot more, uh, down to earth, I think, in uh, in certain respects, uh, it's a very clean movie. Doctor No is uh, from a technical aspect, uh, and I think that Young uh, was certainly a guy who knew his job. Um, yeah, very know, he, he workmanlike director, very solid. Yeah, 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 yeah. But he manages to capture the exoticism uh, of the locales and the uh, the super spy aspects of the movie equally well. He yeah. kind of, you know, he does a nice job balancing uh, between the two. Very well, um, if not incredibly sterile. <laughs> right, no, no, yeah. Uh, there's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it, that's, it, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, definitely, that, I mean, he's in, he's in some quote-unquote rough parts of uh, Jamaica. Yes. He did not go to Trenchtown, I don't think. He did not. And uh, he... Uh, <laughs> It never feels like uh, it's anything but uh, in a studio, but it's clearly shot right. somewhere else. So yeah, no, and and I will say this: I mean, I think uh, from the the rewatch here, I I notice that uh, there's always something visually interesting uh, in the frame. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, Terrence is putting yeah, he's workmanlike, but at the same time, he is. Being thoughtful about his uh, his approach to the uh, the material. Yeah, um, I love the look know, he, of the film, I, and I love the look of the early James Bond movies. I think, oh thing, God, the, yeah. I think the thing that always appeals to me with Bond films is the travelogue aspect of it. Uh, Bond can go to anywhere, right? And I think that, and I think that's still one of the best things about Bond movies. Yes, is that the productions are huge. And they can go to, I don't know, the Marshall Islands and make a movie. They yeah. can go anywhere. And obviously a lot, a big strong part of James Bond is also kind of inspired and slightly inspired a lot of the comic books that we grew up loving. And that, you know, our bad guys are kind of ridiculous, uh, you know, and that kind of stuff. And they have like their own islands and things like that. And it just, it just makes for a fun thing. But I've always enjoyed the travelogue aspects of of the bond movies because they can get into certain locations and that production value is insane like there's this i don't know this what it is like an elect maybe an electric company or something that big so they go to was it crab island is that what they call it i can't remember what they call it in the movie i don't Uh, recall the, the island that dr no is on and they go to um this there's this big what looks like contraption, but it's clearly really built. I don't know what it is. Yep. Uh, and it, it just looks so cool. It's kind of like what we talked about last week with that uh, abandoned uh, electric uh, facility or steel mill yeah, yeah, that yeah, we yeah, saw yeah, with yeah. Uh, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2. I love when movies do that, and they take, you know, uh, it's one of my fa- like it is my favorite thing about 12 Monkeys, the Terry Gilliam film, you know, taking existing locations and turning them into something else. Mm-hmm. 
it's really impressive when they can do that. And I think Bond films have always been able to do that relatively maybe the best. Even with films I don't like, like Quantum of Solace, or even Spectre, which we've kind of talked about a little bit and kind of how we didn't like that one. Uh, you can't argue that the locations weren't cool. No, no, you can't. Uh, that is certainly one of the things that um, that propelled it, I think, uh, in a lot of ways into the uh, the stratosphere. Is that you know they were able to show people uh, basically the rest of the world, I mean, even though it's through a certain filter. Sure, um, but yeah. it is absolutely escapism defined almost yes. uh, in a cinematic way yeah. and it is um you know the early 60s i mean you, you, dude you weren't seeing a lot of shit like this i'm no. sorry you weren't you weren't no um people weren't going to, to jamaica go the scale that they went yeah yeah is really is really what uh, what um you know kind of kickstarted it in there and in a lot of ways i guess you you could you could look at uh and and people always point to um Jaws and Star Wars uh, as being the big, uh, you know, having the the big uh, summer tentpole movies and and killing uh, the uh, independent cinema. But I, I mean, you could very much argue that the the Bond series before them, oh yeah, uh, kind of uh, lit the fuse, so mm-hmm. to speak. Yeah, uh, to that uh, to what would eventually you know become that. Yeah, I've never I've never bought into the Star Wars. Jaws blockbusters break in movies. I I just think that the the zeitgeist changed, right? And mm, mm. I think that happens every couple of decades. I think it happened in the nineties with the independent cinema coming back. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, yeah it had its little gasp there. Yeah. And then it goes away again. Now it's comic book movies. And I think comic book movies, whether we like it or not, they will die. Well, sure. And then it'll be something else. And uh, yeah. that's that's yeah, yeah. just culture. That's the way culture moves. Uh, but it's interesting how 007 and the Bond movies have survived uh, while adapting, we should say, uh, because certainly the Daniel Craig uh, Bond films feel like uh, superhero movies in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, and, and these derivatives of Bond, you know, Jason Bourne, um, I don't know, uh, you could even look at Angelina Jolie's uh, Salt as yeah, a derivative yeah. of James Bond, but these derivatives of John of uh, John John of James <laughs> Bond, uh, you know they've they've been around and they'll always be around. And and you know I, I see you can see Marvel movie plotting in this movie. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it's it's right there. You know with the way the bad guys set up and stuff. I mean you don't see the the heavy. You don't see the actual the the titular as we like to say <laughs> dr no until jesus it's uh it's a good ways into the movie i think it's 90 minutes into an hour and 50 minute long movie at 90 minutes you finally see dr no yeah until yeah. then he's just kind of talked about and i think that's one of the other things that the bond films used to do quite well uh there's some of them that don't do this well some of them have the the heavy right from the get-go it just depends on the director and depends on the story i guess but mm-hmm. I have always been a big fan of creating, I mean, it creates an aura around the Dr. No character uh, that makes him more dangerous than he eventually, when we see him, he actually looks, I mean, he looks kind of, right. even by. Well, it's, it's the, it's the don't show the shark Yeah, uh, going back to Jaws. Yeah. Uh, it's that, uh, it's that, you know, things are more effective in your mind than yeah. actually see, than the uh, the reality of it. Yeah, you know? creating, you're creating the mythos of that, like talking about sure. Vader in Star Wars, right? When when Kenobi's talking about Darth Vader, 
it creates a heavy, even though that movie opens with Vader in a lot of ways, but just that little bit they open with Vader and then they come back and Kenobi's on Tatooine and he's like and talking about Vader, it makes him that much more heavy. Mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. he's talking about how you know the, the 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 kind of pathos of the Vader character, and so here we get the same thing with the Doctor No character, and that they're talking about him, but nobody really knows he's this mysterious, you know, guy. Of course, you know, when we meet him, we find out he's got robotic hands. So, you know, they, they never talk well, about yeah, that. Yeah. So that 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 adds a different element to it, and it, and it's fun because that's kind of the. I think the early Bond films really loved the bad guys to have a gadget of their own. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean I mean this film it started the trend of the the villain being disfigured or artificial in some way. Mm-hmm. I and like agree. you said, you know, yeah. you got the, the mechanical hand sort of like what um Ken She would have in Enter the Dragon 11 years on. Yeah. Um <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean that that's kind of been that's kind of also one of the another one of the the sort of hallmarks of the Bond series is that everybody always comments on the villains are almost uniformly um, disfigured. They're monstrous, not only in what they're doing, but in the way that they they actually appear. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's something that that really gets uh, that's played up a lot. So yeah, and one of the great things about the series itself, right, is to watch how time changes. Sure, sure, uh, sure. While the Bond character almost stubbornly is frozen in amber, he's frozen in amber and stays this kind of misogynistic. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know what the word I'm looking for, but uh, squeaky wheel, not squeaky wheel. It's a stubborn, macho. I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but uh, he just he doesn't change. And uh, in a lot of ways, the Craig character is still the same. I mean, he's not as overtly uh, sexist as the Connery Bond was, but the times are different too. I mean, uh, that that's it should be said. I mean. You know, women are stronger in our society now than they were in the '60s, and that certainly shows in the movies that are made now. So, mm-hmm. and rightfully so. Um, I look back on these things the same way I look back on, uh, you know, race in movies. Yeah, it, it 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 wasn't fair, and it's not right, but it captures a time, and uh, that is what it is. And there's nothing you can do about it. That's just the way the culture was at that time. Indeed, indeed. Um, Some good-looking ladies in this film, though, for the record. <laughs> yes, sir. In both uh, of our films, you know, I hate to, you know, here I am talking championing uh, the female characteristics of film and then, you know, power, woman, women power and all that kind of stuff, female power, all those kind of good things. But I'm just going to flat out say it as a guy. Both of our movies this week got some hotties in there. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) So where's where's my spring effect? Boing! (laughs) (laughs) Oh, bust that shit out. So uh, I kind of like that uh, that his boss impugns Bond's choice of gun as a lady's weapon. Yes. Uh, And he also mentions that uh, Bond was laid up after his last job, so he's you know. He's hardly set up uh, in this first installment as the infallible Superman. Sure. Uh, even though he really, you know, he is an infallible Superman, but he's mm-hmm. not set up that way. Um, and certainly, you know, this is. Uh, I, I don't think that with, without the Cold War, uh, the Bond movies and all the Euro spy imitations that it spawned likely would not have taken off like they did. Yeah. Um, and. You know, it's it's my opinion that the busting up of the USSR, uh, things like globalization and political correctness, 
uh, has all but killed it, uh, and spy movies in, in general. Yes. Uh, which is why you see a lot of them that are, you know, much more in the Jason Bourne vein, mm-hmm. uh, because they could focus on um, these sort of uh, fight choreographies and, and that sort of thing rather than uh, anything that's actually going on in the movie. Uh, you know, the waters are, are I, I think, in a lot of ways too muddy now. Uh, the line between good and bad is too blurred yeah. uh, to get as much out of these things as uh, as old school Bond movies um, well, could do. Yeah, and also people are more critical of their own governments now as opposed to back there's then. That, there's that as well, yeah. Yeah, so a lot, yeah, a lot no, of those we, films we, are... did, we didn't think. Yeah, we didn't think about that, that sort of thing uh, until, what, like maybe a year later? Yeah. <laughs> Say? Yeah, yeah, um, the, yeah, you're right. I mean... Uh, you're talking about the assassination, I'm assuming, right? Yes. So that yeah. changed everything, right? That kind of changed the way we looked at our own government, and and uh, it just well, you know between that and Vietnam, yeah, yeah, that and Nam, and you know, the Korean, even the Korean War in some ways. But I mean, the it's 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 interesting that you say that. Though. I mean, there was a sense of uh, almost patriotism to the kind of early Bond films, and that is what miss is missing from and i'm not saying it in a bad way i enjoy i enjoy the born films for what what it's worth i like them they're yeah, okay yeah and uh and i enjoy a lot of spy films i even enjoyed salt which i brought up earlier <laughs> i i like that one yeah but i i think that you know i think the only thing i really enjoy about those movies is the secret worlds these people operate in you know um but they are very hypercritical nowadays especially because that's the way our culture is they're very hypercritical of their own governments or if you notice most of the corruption in modern spy movies tends to come from within yes, yes. which is definitely where our society is and has been for quite some time right right but i did my yeah but yeah the point is that we need we need the exterior villain yeah which for is these things to work it's tough to do nowadays because nowadays well, it is. you know saying somebody in jamaica is a bad guy might not translate very well. <laughs> well, no, no, it doesn't. I mean, it's gotten it's gotten so caught up in this in this sort of thing. It's so the world's become so self conscious of every step that it takes mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. it's very very difficult uh, to uh, to do anything. Yeah, this is um, true. Yep. I certainly do anything like this. Yep. Ah, uh, so yeah, uh, so pour one out for the. Uh, the Cold War, I guess. <laughs> uh, so it, was, you got to, it was a simpler time. We were just scared of dying from uh, nuclear war. We weren't. <laughs> yes. Yes. Although, although you got to, you know, let's let's be honest here. They're they're pretty um, they're pretty laissez faire uh, about uh, about nuclear everything uh, yes. in this movie. Yes, they are. Uh, you know, it's uh, whatever. Uh, it's yeah, it's very casual. Uh, the treatment of nuclear radiation—it uh, yes. was you know no big, it's no big thing. For well, we did. Yeah, we, we'll, uh, go, we'll go take a shower. Yeah, I remember. You know, at the time they didn't really know. You know, they didn't yeah, know they what did. that was going to happen, right? I mean, John Wayne didn't well, yeah, know. I, mean, they, they, I don't think anybody knew when they were. This was only seventeen years on from. Yeah, and they didn't really know the effects, and you know, they shot the Conqueror, and uh, you know, yeah, nobody yeah, really knew. Look what that did. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it's just nobody really knew, you know, and everybody's smoking too. I mean, it's just, you know, it is what it is. I mean, it. Yep. 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 We're the human race. We figure things out as we go along. Indeed. <laughs> yeah. No, that's, that's, come on. It's, 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 it's incredibly ridiculous to think that we're just going to get it right, right out of the gate. Never will. Time. We never will. No. Uh, no. And I don't think that it, it helps any to, to be 
kicked around for it uh, in with the 2020 hindsight. Yeah, you know, right. Well, yeah. I mean, like I said, you know, I often say this about the human race. I mean, the only difference is, is that we write write about it, we think about it, we talk about yeah. it. Yeah, sure. That's you know? how you improve. I mean, yeah. The difference between us and a gorilla is a gorilla wakes up and he's just worried about what he's going to do in the next minute. If he's going to eat, yes. if he's going to shit, what he's going to do. See, now yeah. I want to have a banana. Now, sometimes, don't lie, don't, both of us wake up probably in our mid-40s and say, do I shit first? Yeah, right. Or do I eat first? Which one? Sometimes you wake up because you have to shit. Yeah, exactly. That Exactly. Uh, but I, I will the, say that we're I the only creatures that, yeah, we're the only creatures on the planet. I believe, we don't know this for a fact. Uh, but this is our human thinking. We are the only creatures on the planet that think about tomorrow and think about yesterday. Yes. A lot of creatures. Yeah, we're the only things that don't actually uh, yeah. live in the present. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we're the only things that don't. That's what makes us human. And mm -hmm. in some ways, that's what makes us precious. But in some ways, that's what makes us dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that. Not to get too deep into the, all that stuff. But it's very, very true. People yes. sometimes work towards something that's going to happen 20 years from now. And doing that, they destroy everything that's going on while they're working for that thing for 20 years from now <laughs> oh i laugh about that some people say I'm, I'm just working for my retirement like you are guaranteeing you're going to be alive then you should not even think about that because it, it's not a guarantee brother no there ain't no guarantees in anything nope uh so speaking of uh all the things that are wrong with the world uh you have white people <laughs> playing asians here. yes uh, and the series was if memory serves uh, not above black or brown face. Uh, this is a, definitely a true statement, and uh, it's one of the dark sides of the Bond franchise. How about it? There's nothing uh, we can so, do about it. It is what it now, is. Now, that being said, I DVR'd this off of TCM, and I was kind of shocked that there was no trigger warning beforehand. Yeah. <laughs> uh, to be perfectly fucking blunt. I got to say, the Asian makeup routine here is pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised he wasn't just holding his eyelids, like pulling. His oh eyelids. my god! I know it's it's <laughs> pretty rough. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I mean it's one of those things where even I, like, I'm sitting in my movie chair or my chair, and I'm watching the film. I'm on nice TV, and then when I see actresses show, because first you see actresses show up with the makeup on, yeah, and I just squirm. I have to change the way my legs are crossed because I'm like, yes. This is not <laughs> this has not aged well. And then no. it goes it goes further along into the movie and it just gets worse. Yes, it does. <laughs> so, and it yeah, just all, all of you people who are <laughs> sensitive to this kind of shit, stay away. Yeah. And, uh, and if you're sensitive to Yeah, like if you're like Todd though and you're too and you're sensitive to Mandarin collars, stay away. Oh dude. They're horrible. <laughs> <laughs> so uh yeah, Jack Lord shows up. Uh, so that we have the clear uh, us versus them that we need in the film. So I, I uh, gotta ask the question. I got a note here. I gotta ask the question. What okay. do you think came worse? Came came worse. Came first. Uh, Peter North. The yes. The the fact that a wave uh, breaks the way it does, or Jack Lord's hair. <laughs> <laughs> does his hair? Did his hair perpetuate the ocean changing its format? <laughs> Uh, I could see that being the case. I could see it. Uh, yeah, I could definitely see it. Uh, it doing that. It has that effect. He has uh, such distinct hair that the minute you yeah. see that guy, yeah, like I totally forgotten rewatching this movie. You know, I I don't pull up IMDb before I watch a movie. I usually pull it up maybe during if I've seen it before a bunch of times or after. And uh, I I totally forgotten Jack Lord was in this. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, and he's fun. Yeah, he, uh, he's good in it. He's fun. 
I'll no, no, no he, does, he gives us the little intro to Felix Leiter. Yeah. Uh, you know, and that's a friendship that uh, developed through a lot of the movies. Um, almost always played by somebody different, if, if memory serves. Uh, uh, yeah, I don't. Who? Man, that's I can't a think good of any. Question. Well, the only the only person who I think played it more than twice would have been Jeffrey Wright. Yeah. I think maybe. Uh, um, I'm looking into this now. But yeah, no. Uh, J- speaking of Jack Lloyd's hair, I mean, he had that. Yeah, he had that '50s quaff um, that uh, that I I grew up around. Um, you know, going into you know the fucking Dunkin' Donuts or whatever, <laughs> and seeing all the guys sitting there drinking coffee for like three hours and smoking cigarettes, <laughs> and that was the haircut. Um, yeah, that was, was the, yeah, the Jack Lord. Yep. Uh, so yeah, I I do have a certain fondness for that. Um, I, I also love, uh, the quarrel character. Uh, and you know, there's that scene where the chick just absolutely digs the flashbulb into his face. Uh, that, you know, that's, uh, it's one of those moments that always stood out for me for its roughness and for his enjoyment of it. Uh, it's just, it's one of those weird sort of, uh, sort of elements going on. So here are the Felix Leiter, uh, actors, okay. David Hedison, Jack Lord, Jeffrey yeah. Wright. Yeah. Sec Linder, okay. Norman Burton, uh, one of my favorite ones, say Rick Van Nutter, <laughs> John Terry, and this is fun, Bernie Casey. What the fuck? What was Bernie Casey? Felix Leiter. <laughs> he was in uh, the Never Say Never Again, the kind of re- rebel. Uh, oh, wow. Why? I do not remember him from that. Yeah, but then yeah. again, I don't really remember much besides Barbara Bo- or not Barbara Bach, Barbara Carrera. Yeah, that one's that one's fun just because it's kind of a an outlaw Bond film, right? Yeah, it's kind yeah, of made yeah. outside well, the. That was that, that was such a bizarre sort of uh, yeah. confluence of events that yeah. went into that one. It would be fun to review that one in a way because that one's that one's weird. It's a, it's a weird one in the in the it Bond is. world. It it really really is. Um, so really, really stands out, kind of like Honor Majesty's Secret Service does. The, the, those those two really. Yeah, but stand out. Nothing stands out more than Moonraker. I think is is a better movie. It's oh, more enjoyable. Oh no, no doubt. In a lot of ways. Neither one of them can compare to the awfulness of Moonraker, though. So you can't. Uh, that's the one that's just. Like, <laughs> <laughs> that's got the that's got the Star Wars stain all over it. <laughs> oh, it does. Uh, I have a certain fondness for oh, Moonraker. Oh man, I love Moonraker. Uh, uh yeah but of course There's we grew we, we grew up on those uh 70s bonds films right we grew up on those 70s and early well, 80s was, roger moore the tongue was firmly in the cheek yeah well it was between two cheeks it was uh, uh oh yeah <laughs> it was between roger moore's cheeks Ooh, i don't uh, know if he, that's a is that a good place to be it is maybe in the 70s it was maybe for william lonsdale but yeah. um <laughs> Or Jaws, <laughs> Richard Keel, but <laughs> uh, you know what I love about Richard Keel is he would always grow his hair out and it always looked bad. He Poor never, guy. he never had good hair. He never did in any Poor movie. Bastard. If you go back and look at all of his performances, there's never I can think of any scene where his hair looks good. No, no, no. And I, you know, I, I feel bad for him because at least, well, I, well, I no, I'm, I'm kind of almost jealous because at least he had hair. Yeah, but. Um, but at the same time, yeah, he just he didn't know what to do with it. Yep. It was always just a mop. Yeah, um, it always looked disheveled. Exactly. And even if it was a wig, it still looked wrong. It just, it just, <laughs> I, I don't know. You're right though, Richard Keel. 
easily one of uh, cinema's worst hair people. Yes, 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 yes. Um, so, yeah, there's the scene where uh, the scientist, who is played by Anthony Dawson, for once in front of the camera, ho, 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 um, goes to uh, visit Dr. No. Yes. Uh, and it really drives home the level of scope and production design uh, that the uh, the movie gets into. They, you know, there's that giant room uh, and the shadows and everything, and it looks absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Um, Was it Ken Adam or yeah. something like that? The production design? I think he... I can't remember his name, so... Uh, I he's a famous production designer, so I, I'm gonna look and see. Don't recall. Um, yeah, I mean, it's not like you know that that name's on the tip of the tongue. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and of course, uh, there's uh, the fact that you know we all know that uh, tarantulas are fairly harmless, uh, but that makes them being in your bed no less creepy. Well, I mean, uh, but, you know, th- but th- th- this is okay yeah. because you can clearly see that the spider's not actually walking on Connery. Yeah, yeah, you can clearly see that. As a matter of fact, there's one point where you can see his skin up against the, uh, especially glass. on the Blu-ray, you can see his skin up against the glass or the plexiglass or whatever they're using. I don't even know if plexiglass existed in 62, but. Uh, I don't know. Uh, anyway, the, uh, yeah, tarantulas look great, right? They look menacing. They've, they 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 got the look. Now, they mm-hmm. do bite. They do bite. Well, they're, so. Yeah, they do, but, I mean, generally speaking, they're one of the more harmless, but listen, I am more scared of a tiny brown recluse than I am of a as you should be. Tarantula. Yes, as you should be, dude. Those... A brown recluse bites you. Fuck, get come on. Did yeah. you have you ever seen what those bites will do to you? Oh man, they'll destroy you. They're nasty. Yeah, uh, Ken Adam. Uh, yeah, he's very famous. Uh, he ended up doing. Uh, I didn't know he did the Barry Lyndon production design. Wow, huh. I did not know that. How about that? Very nice. But he did a lot of these. He did a lot of these Bond films. Doctor No. Um, he did Goldfinger, Thunderball, Thunderball, Dim- Diamonds of Fr- Ooh, he did Moonraker. Ah, there you go. Nice, so, nice, nice, nice. Yeah, yeah. So there uh, you go. But uh, yeah, he also did. Uh, wow, he did Doctor Strange Love. I did not know that. <laughs> That's just the certain things you go back and look at. You know, oh, he did Salon Kitty as well. How interesting. He did. <laughs> he did Barry Lyndon, and they did Salon Kitty the year after. That's, that uh, is absolutely fitting. Wow, talking about going two different ways. Yikes! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, 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 not nothing wrong with that. Don't get me wrong. It just, uh, it's interesting the uh, career he had. He, it's, he's got a lot of movies here that we could talk about for hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I don't doubt that. I'm sure that you could do. I'm sure that you could write an entire book about the guy. Yep. Um, I'm sure there are okay. books written about the guy. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. There probably is. Uh, there probably is. Um, so yeah. So Jimmy. Uh, he manages to bang the yellow menace, uh, played by Zena Marshall. Oh yeah, uh, and then he has her carted off. Oh man, I love her <laughs> so, so much. She is, she is something else. Yeah, right. Like she is. Rawr. So yeah, I mean yes, uh, the series is is quite sexist. It's you know, possibly misogynistic, especially when you you know you get into certain aspects like you know. Um, in, in the series in general, you know, like there's a, a gypsy bitch fights and, and things like that. Um, and you know, yes, we can complain about that today. Uh, though I don't see much use in that, but I also think that, uh, it plays into the notion, um, that this is a rough business. Uh, and you know, no one is, uh, is really immune from, from that. Uh, nor can you, you know, take chances with the enemy, male, female, or other. Yeah. Uh, so in that sense, you know, you could actually argue that um, it's uh, actually kind of uh, feminist 
though definitely from a male perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm sure that you could you could write entire papers, and I'm sure have been written uh, about the uh, you know the the sexism of the uh, James Bond series in general. Yeah, they're probably uh, and in, it they're, is there. They're probably I mean, in this. There's no denying it. Yeah, they're probably in the same book as the Ken Adams stuff. As a matter of fact, uh, it might be. It might be in the uh, the appendix. <laughs> yes. uh, I believe. Um, Got to be so, careful what you put in the appendix. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> well, that's why they're so useless. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's why people remove them all the time. Uh, You're giving you me know, a Ursula, situs. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Ursula Andress shows up, and she does have a, a really she does have a striking entrance. Uh, obviously, yeah, it's uh, one of the most. Us, you yeah. know, she does give us the, the double entendre name thing. Yes, uh, going on for the first time, Honey Rider, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, but if I'm if I'm being perfectly honest. Uh, she was never my favorite Bond girl. She's not my favorite either. She just has a great. She has a great appearance. Yes. Yeah, uh, yeah. Cinematically, it's one of the best. Like, probably, arguably, one of the most. I don't know if best, but most impactful uh, appearances from a female sexual, well, she was, a yeah, sexually yeah. female character. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she's. I mean, she's. She's kind of. Uh, she's an interesting character because she starts strong. Turns into well, a bit of a shaky leaf, yeah, and then kind well, of finishes. She, strong. she starts strong. She starts strong in the appearance, but I mean, she's she's a complete innocent. She's almost simple. Yeah, uh, oh, in yeah, terms she's... of her, you know, relevance to the story. I mean, despite you know what her dialogue says, uh, she's really just kind of you know there. Uh, she she says she reads the encyclopedia. Uh, but she believes in dragons. But then again, I mean, you could argue that so does Quarrel. So yeah. I mean, you kind of it, the, the, the balances are not exactly uh, before the internet when everybody was set around and read the Encyclopedia Britannica. And uh, that's exactly right when the, people would sell them door to door. The Funkin' uh, Wagnalls. I mean, <laughs> being perfectly, you know, honest about it, she's very little other than uh, a damsel in distress throughout the entire movie. Yes, yes, um, and she has arguably. Arguably, and I know this is saying something, but maybe one of the worst reaction shots in the history of cinema in this movie, <laughs> when Bond takes somebody out there in the pond in the in the in the stream, they cut to her, and it is dreadful. <laughs> I mean, reaction shots are never good, but I'm telling you right now, this one is oh man, it's it's up there. People always, you know, make fun of the samurai cop reaction shots. Well, that's a different level. Yeah, but that at least knows what it is. This one, I think, is actually trying for something, and it is well, yeah, yeah, this was just, this was just, yeah, a little bit awkward. Yes, uh, well, extremely awkward. Yeah, extremely um, awkward. Yes. One of the things that uh, I've always loved uh, is the whole faux hospitality thing that goes on in every James Bond movie. Oh yes, I love uh, that. and this has it in spades. Oh yeah, I love that. Uh, that whole, like that whole like I know that you're a spy. You know that you're a spy. You know that I'm the bad guy. I know that I'm the bad guy. But we're not going to say anything. Yeah, let's we're just have dinner. Sit here and have tea or whatever. Yeah, let's have dinner. Let's let me show you all my nice things I've collected yeah, over the years. Yeah, that I'm going <laughs> to tie you up to and try to <laughs> yeah. kill you with. Which I think is what uh, Mike Myers really nailed with the Austin Powers character is the the bad guys and their their fetishes for furniture and yeah, yeah. Uh, home decoration. <laughs> <laughs> well, their 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 vanity, yes. uh, in a way, yeah. yeah. There's a lot of what goes in on that. Um, but yeah, no, I, that's one of the things that I always like. I would always sit there as a kid, and I was just like, "Why is he not just fucking shooting him?" Yes. Uh, but no, they would have to do the dance, and that's part of the uh, the joy of uh, the James Bond series. Well, it kind of goes back to the westerns too, right? I mean, westerns 
There's a lot of in a way, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of times when in a western where the good guy could shoot the bad guy and end the whole story. But sometimes it's about it. It really and with Leone especially, it's all about the dance. In a way. No, I agree. I agree. It very much is. You got to drag it out. Um, you have to wring maximum tension. Yes. Uh, because that's what that is. That's tension. Um, so the ending to the movie is uh, is really big and it's really exciting uh, and it's very very plain uh, by this moment, by this uh, point in the in the picture, uh, why this series became as successful as Godzilla's, uh, and spawned just about as many. Um, movies uh in it if no well i think actually godzilla's over on it but um it's close but yeah no uh it's uh it's it's interesting uh but yeah i mean everything is here uh the table is pretty much set for what was going to come uh afterwards and you can you can map out uh everything that this uh this movie did and did first uh as much as you're seeing uh the traditions that it was uh moving off of uh and especially you know and even going back to uh some of the stuff like um uh, our other uh, our other filmmaker today hitchcock uh there are elements uh, there that uh, you know that sort of um the ticking bomb sort of uh ideal uh that uh, that he perfected uh but i like this movie uh is it my favorite in the series no it's not uh but it is you know certainly noteworthy uh, for everything that it would do uh, everything that it didn't and would do, and I think it had a, a budget of like um, maybe a million dollars. Yeah, which, uh, which it, is I think a, it bagged like seventy or a hundred million dollars yeah. off of that. A million dollars so in '62 is a lot of money. Oh yeah, yeah, but even here. still, I mean, for, for the the fucking the the uh, the amount that this thing raked in is insane. Yeah, it was by huge. today's standards, it's huge. Yep. Um. So yeah, uh, that's pretty much all I got. So kick yeah. it over to you. Um, yeah, I don't have a whole lot more to add. I mean, I just I kind of chimed in as we went along, which is what I tend to do. I tend to not be able to keep my mouth shut. Um, okay. Yeah, that's what I do. Uh, <laughs> I, I like the sounds. I'll just kind of going to some little tidbits here. I like the sounds of the silencers on the guns in this movie. Mm-hmm. They kind of sound like uh, like punches, you know, like poof, poof, yeah. Poof, yeah, you know they're. Not the kind of dartish kind of sound that would kind of become popular. You know, uh, I kind of enjoyed that, and uh, I also enjoy the kind of you know one of the things else also about the Bond series is I kind of enjoy their kind of ridiculousness sometimes of some of the henchmen. This this one starts with uh, the three blind mice thing. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, the henchmen were always kind of fun in Bond films. They were able to. <laughs> You know, like with they're the, as eccentric, if not more so, than the villains. Yes, you know, you got the snow job, the uh, odd ball, odd job, not snow job. That snow job was a GI <laughs> Joe character. G.I. Joe. Yes, <laughs> which you know, me and my brother didn't call snow job. No. Uh, we called him something else. Um, I can't imagine. Yeah, it, it rhymed with snow job. The uh, <laughs> to take all the mystery out of there for people. Pl- plow job. Yeah, plow job. That was it. Yeah, plow. Anyway, um, but yeah, this one kind of starts that, and you know, you get that throughout the history of the series in a way. Uh, although I don't know if the Daniel Craig films really have had the henchmen; they seem to have taken the henchmen kind of away. They and- really have, because I, I mean, and that's what I talk about when I talk about you know this sort of um, this sort of globalization thing that's uh, mm-hmm. that's kind of ruined um, 
things like uh, James Bond. Yeah. Is that we, we don't have these things anymore. We can't have, you know, it can't just be somebody doing these weird things. And, and it, 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 it's almost like um, the Daniel Craig movies, as much as I like two of them, uh, <laughs> they really um, they really have kind of gone the, the way of the 90s uh, comic book in the sense of yeah. uh, trying to grim and gritty everything yeah. Uh, you know, trying to make it more realistic when it really, uh, James Bond doesn't want to be realistic. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that you can't have realism in there. You can. Um, but I, you know, to, to try and play it off like, uh, like something a bit more pedestrian, I think is a mistake in a mm-hmm. lot of ways. Yeah. I think the henchmen are something they're really missing because I mean, you're right. It does culturally, sometimes the henchmen could be, well, in modern times they could be seen as insensitive racial epitaphs right uh potentially yeah insensitive culturally insensitive uh but they're kind of fun in the way that they would usually introduce something like uh well gadgets or perhaps uh, a type of music or uh any kind of weird thing uh metal teeth uh, yeah. you know, you just, I think about the bond, the fuck uh, that razor top hat. Yeah. I just, all the ridiculousness in that. And that really, I think the ridiculousness of bond is something that is really missing. I don't mind the realism of the Craig films that much, but they can be for lack of a better word at times they can be dour. They can be yeah, yeah. heavy to the point well, of, they, 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 they do get a bit navel gazy. Yeah. Yeah. They get, a little caught up sometimes too much mm-hmm. in the psychosis of bond himself. Yeah. Which I think is kind of a mistake. Yeah. Uh, which all you really have to do is look at something like this, uh, to, uh, to compare yeah. and, uh, you know, you get the idea pretty hard. Yeah. Bond is not really, it's not important that he thinks about what he does. All that's important for the story of a bond movie or a film or a novel is to get from point A to point B and for his character to be that thing that carries us through that. And uh, mm-hmm. it shouldn't be political or it shouldn't be anything else. It should just be this kind of catalyst to get through this kind of story. And that's that's yeah. what, when Bond works his best, I think. So anyway, um, it's interesting how these films, too, you know, they kind of embrace technology, but they always have characters who can't stand it in a weird way. Uh, kind of like people in real life, you know, you, mm-hmm. you know, you meet people and they're like, I got one of these damn smartphones. I don't know why they call it a smartphone. It's not that smart. If you ask me, <laughs> you know, you get people like this all the time, you know, and, and afraid of technology, afraid of change, uh, reticent for that change to happen. And the bond films kind of are always on the precipice of that because they're always dealing with technology. So you always get the bond character. Who's I think maybe with the more character, he was more reticent for the tech he thought it was cool but you could also tell he didn't really think he thought he needed it yeah yeah, yeah. uh with connery it was a little different and then with some of the other guys later on they would use it uh like daniel craig has no problem with the technology no (laughs) like like he loves it (laughs) but it's interesting that that's the way the generations have changed you know like you get the guys from the past like oh yeah what's right smoking gives you cancer i don't give a shit i'm gonna fucking smoke And then now you got the guys that are like, oh yeah, I got to take care of myself. I got to have a six pack. I got to, you know, yep. I got to wear a speedo. Yep. Uh, you know, it's just interesting to see the way culture changes and the way it, uh, the way it uh, defines itself. Um, but it is kind of the, some of the fun things about the Bond series itself is watching time change. Like this is, you know, shot in 1960, 1961, released in 62. 
it's a very much much more innocent time uh, as far as what we saw as good and bad, uh, and that kind of comes through. I do think they handle uh, the Jamaican characters uh, pretty realistically in the movie. Like they don't, I don't think frown upon them in any way. No, they're not really. Yeah, they're not looked uh, looked down upon. Yeah. I don't think the Asian characters maybe they don't handle as well. I don't think they insult yeah. them, but just obviously by not casting Asian actors, yeah. it can be seen as an insult. But they don't go. It's. I mean, it's not Charlie Chan. I mean, it's 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 not far removed from that. But it's not also you know that. Well, no, they're not. They're not doing you know Ching Chong Ting Tong yeah. shit. It's not Peter really. Sellers doing Fu yeah. Manchu, yeah, 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 you know, yeah. or anything like that. Uh, but it's you know it is it is there, so you have to address it in that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, if there's an issue with the film for me, though, I think the pacing is a little off. Um, a little bit, yeah. yeah. There, there are moments when I got bored. You know, uh, I just got bored. I mean, I, I can't explain it, and, and I always blame that on the pacing. But there's just moments when I'm like, come on, man, get to the punchline. You know, it's just like. You're walking around, you know, you're looking at collars, you're looking at this, you're looking at that. Although I do like that little scene where Bond sets up his uh, his uh, rented hotel or his uh, whatever that is, Copabana, whatever you want to, I don't know what that is, what, <laughs> where they set up his little place. He puts like the hair, he pulls a hair out, which is funny when you think about Oh, Shaka. okay. Yeah, his uh, bungalow, I yeah, guess. Yeah, his bungalow. His, like, he sets up and he puts powder on the thing just to make sure everybody's you know, if, if he's being watched or not. And those are the little moments. And those are the things I've always liked about Bond is that he's always a, a step ahead. And then occasionally, no matter how far of a step ahead he is, like he has this very elitist type of uh, way of, t- they, they always have this kind of elitist Bond smarter than everybody else in the room. Mm-hmm. And then somehow, some way, he always finds himself in peril, usually because of some goofy mistake he made. <laughs> Which again, I think is something that Mike Myers really did a good job of you know, parodying, uh, parodying, parodying, harping on, making homage <laughs> to with the Austin Powers character. And that, you know, it seems like the character is on top of it. And then all of a sudden it's like, whoops, slipped on a banana peel. <laughs> you know, it's, it's really that simple sometimes, you know. Um, and sometimes with the Bond character, it was because of a female usually. Um, I think also the reason why the Bond character has persevered over the years is because it is pure male fantasy. Uh, yeah. Yeah. not just the, you know you can look at it as misogyny but I don't really see it that way I think all young men growing up want to believe that they're you know maybe not they want to believe but they would like to be the the dapper you know different lady at any given time hanging out looking good being cool you know Bond, Bond attracts us for all those reasons and I think that crosses cultures too I don't think that's just a quote unquote white thing I think that's a a male thing and I think we all and you know because I think some of the black exploitation films are basically you know if you look at them they're basically ripping on Bond I mean even Super, oh, yeah. even Superfly and Shaft obviously but but even Superfly who's a pimp I mean he's the Bond of pimps yep so I mean it's male fantasy to the hilt and uh, I think that ages differently compared depending on what you know decade or generation you're in and can seem archaic now um but still works in the weird way and i think that's why they kind of add the psychologically psychological aspects to it with the daniel craig bond which take it or leave it it's there and you got to deal with it but you know he's also still listen i'm not against it but it's it's one of those things that they found a note to play 
Yeah. Uh, and they continue to play it with very little variation mm-hmm. yeah. through all four of his movies. Yeah, well, and he's... I'm going to imagine five. Yeah, uh, if uh, when uh, this No Time to Die ever shows yeah. up, he's uh, very much an emo bond. Yeah, <laughs> he's uh, yeah. he's feeling even it. though even though he still does he still does the the stoic thing. Yes, uh, in a lot of ways, he still yeah. does the you know sort of you know I'm I'm uh, I'm cold calculating you know. We'll use people up uh, to get to uh, from point A to point B. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, uh, it, it's it's interesting. I think the Bond opening, the songs, the presentation—I mean, all that stuff has become part of movie vernacular. Yes, and uh, it's part of what we tune in at this point, certainly. But even in the seventies, when I was growing up, and I think my first Bond film, uh, personally, was For Your Eyes Only. And okay. I believe that's because it was on cable at the time when we got cable. And I just watched that thing over and over and over again. And it, for a long time, I used to say it was my favorite. But it, it's probably not my favorite. It's just my first because it's kind of a ridiculous movie if you go back and look at it. Yeah. But it has some really good moments of tension and and uh, scene building that are really well done. It's just not a great movie. Well, uh, I had, uh, I think, if I'm remembering right, I actually had the... Um the Marvel comics adaptation of uh, for your eyes only. No, you might have, uh, as well. So I think, I but have. I like that one. I, I, I didn't like that one as much as some of the others. Yeah. Uh, to be perfectly honest, there's better. Well, Roger Moore's got some, he's got some really good ones too. I mean, I think people, because by the time Roger Moore comes along, it is tongue in cheek a bit more. It is a bit more comedic or a bit more, you know, <laughs> uh, for lack of a better term, uh, there are some good Roger Moore Bond films. I mean, he was a good Bond, I think. And he he's my he's, you know, my generation's Bond, our generation's Bond. Yes. Uh, whether yeah. we like it or not. Do I think Connery looks better in the role? Sure. I do. But, you know, I have a soft spot for or a hard spot for uh Roger Moore. And I've enjoyed all the actors who have played uh Bond to varying degrees. Uh Pierce Brosnan nails it in some ways, although I think his films uh are some of the most detrimental to the series. Um, Lazenby's great in the one he did. Uh, Dalton was fine, even though I don't think they ever knew how to use Dalton correctly. I don't think they did either. I never. I know that everybody goes nuts over the Dalton ones, and I love Timothy Dalton, but I never, ever cared for his uh, his Bond movies. No, I like the one. I like the first one, The Living Daylights. I like that one. But, They're so interchangeable to me, it's not even yeah. funny. Oh, man. The, if we was to do them back-to-back, though, I can tell you that the License to Kill, I think, is the second one. That one is so ridiculous. Maybe <laughs> in the history of Bond films, maybe the one of the most ridiculous Bond films. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. It's for another time. Um, it's very GGTMC in a weird way. Uh, I think that's got... <laughs> isn't, isn't Wayne Newton the bad guy in License to Kill? I'm pretty sure he is. Uh... I'm pretty sure. I don't remember. Yeah, I'm pretty sure Wayne Newton is the heavy in uh, License to Kill. So there you go. I might be wrong about that, but that's what I want it to be. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's it was fun to go back and look at this. Uh, as you know, uh, in the history of doing the show, I like to go back and look at the way culture was in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. Uh, that's one of my favorite things about doing this show is the is the rediscovering or even discovering things from the past. Um, because uh, that's how my personality works. I, I like to go back and read old comics. I like to go back and watch old movies. I like to read old books. 
Uh, it's not because I don't think the new stuff is great. I do. I'm not one of those grandpas who sit around and go, oh, I don't know how to do it nowadays. No, that's me. I don't I don't uh, believe that because uh, that that first episode of The Mandalorian Season 2, wow, them special effects were amazing. <laughs> I enjoyed it. But at the same time, um, I, I appreciate the past, and I think you have to, to uh, be entertained by the present, uh, especially when it comes to art and uh and pop culture. So, and I think it works that way. And it, it's a shame, you know, Sean Connery's gone. Uh, again, he lived to be 90. So it's always kind of weird to say that and stuff. I don't know what else he would have done. He's been retired since uh, league of extraordinary gentlemen. Yep. Um, uh, so it's not like he's been around or anything, but you know, he was a presence. We talked about that with outland when we did that and, uh, he's fun and we haven't done any Sean Connery impersonations this week. Uh, we haven't done that on purpose. I don't think, I think it's just because it just didn't come in. It just, just didn't uh, yeah. make a, well, he doesn't really no have opportunity. Yeah, he doesn't really have the lines in this that. Uh, although he no. does have does have the one line I like where he's like, the, get, uh, "M would get me for use of government property," you know, <laughs> uh, you know, misuse of government property. So, oh, shabby, that was naughty. <laughs> yes. So it's 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 a shame he's gone. Uh, but man, what an what an actor! What an impact he had on cinema. And there's one thing I've always liked about Sean Connery is he's just a, he was a no bullshit kind of guy. <laughs> like if he didn't like something he did like he took that shit to the grave oh yeah like he's like ah it's you know like his league of extraordinary gentlemen like he he would often say it was such a bad experience you know i'm not going back i wouldn't go back to that shit (laughs) that lifestyle he made a good living and he was able to retire and walk away and he had a nice uh, long retirement too so he's able to walk away from it all and, and bravo to him a lot of people don't get to do that a lot of people die with their boots on yeah, yeah, yeah. So he was able just to kind of walk away from it all. And, uh, you know, he made a – he was legendary. I just want to make sure I get that out there. I mean, Sean Connery was was a legend, a cinema legend. And, uh, you know, he made uh, – he was part of part and parcel of one of the, uh, the greatest action and greatest movie franchises of all time. So he will always be tied to that, whether he liked it or not. But he'll always be tied to that. Um, I'm trying to think if I got anything else. Uh, I don't really. Uh just you know i enjoy the series i've always enjoyed the series it's kind of like going back and watching an elvis movie or an abbott and costello movie or a universal horror movie there's just some level of comfort in a bond movie yeah that uh i think or a godzilla movie if you're a kaiju guy like you are um there's just some element of comfort in that it's like you know i enjoy cherry coke so yeah, yeah. Every now and then, it's really nice to have a cherry coke. Although I have to watch that sugar intake at my age now, but fuck uh, that. Yeah, but I still Bring it. I still enjoy the cherry coke. You know, I mean, it's it, it the minute it touches my sense synapses, it brings me back. It takes me to a place. So it's nostalgic, but at the same time, it's just uh, it's a comfort. You know, kind of like uh, like those things, like uh, like my wife who loves Andy Griffith. Uh, okay, and I always tease her about man, where's a there's no African-Americans in Mayberry nowhere. <laughs> and she's always like, shut up, shut up. That's not what Don't I watch it for. for me. Yeah, that's not what I watch it for. I'm like, I know, yeah. I know, but I, you know, I have to well, teach you. Well, it's the same thing yeah. as uh, Archie. Or Happy Days. Yeah. Or anything. You know, I mean, yeah. it is, you know, it just was, it was a different, does it, was it right? No, it wasn't right. Okay, I'm going to say that, but it is what it is and you got to deal with it. So we're moving on from that. Um, yeah, man, I don't have a lot more to say. Terrence Young, good, uh, solid director, workmanlike director. Didn't he work with? Yeah, he did. He worked with Bronson. I think the Veloci Papers, which is coming out uh, on D on Blu-ray pretty soon. 
Hmm. That's a pretty good. That's an underseen Bronson film. So definitely check that out. Uh, that's all I got. Let's hear Make or Break's MVTs. All righty. Uh, so Make or Break, I'm going to go with the opening. Uh, it's a fantastic setup. It moves lightning fast. Gives us a ton of information visually. Uh, while also giving us enough intrigue to keep us planted yep. uh, for the whole two hours. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's as iconic as iconic gets. Um, MVT, as much as I think most people would go Connery on this, I'm going to go with the, uh, Saltzman broccoli production duo, uh, because I think they had uh, a strong enough hand and vision, uh, for this to survive and flourish for almost 60 years, beginning with this, uh, this particular acorn that grew into quite the mighty oak. Uh, I got to say. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to give it to them. And score for me is 7.5 out of 10. Nice, um, nice. Yeah, I mean, this was a trendsetter. Uh, and uh, there's, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a James Bond movie. I mean, there's not much more you can say. There is the weird thing my computer does. And I often, I don't go back and listen to the show. But every now and then I'll hear like a brief snippet of an ad. And it just did that just now. I played some little weird thing. So, hmm. it's the strangest thing. I don't know what, if it's the browser I got open. I mean, I got everything muted. It's just, uh, what, what, how irritating can it be? Uh, anyway, neither here nor there. Um, okay, my make or break is, oh, I agree with you on the make or break. It's definitely the opening, uh, although there is a lot of good moments, and you do get that very pivotal uh, dinner with the bad guy scene, which is very important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, Dr. No himself is a lot of fun. Uh, he's, a, 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 he, he's, a. I like how his strength, his, uh, robot hands, uh, ends up being his weakness. <laughs> there it goes again. There, there with the music displayed again briefly. I have no idea why it is dry. I heard nothing. Yeah, I know. You won't. That, it drives me bonkers. Anyway, ugh, fun being a podcaster. Um, my MVT, I also agree with you. I can't give it to Connery here because I think he did better jobs in later Bond films. Like I think here he's kind of finding the character a little bit. Uh, later on, I think he really nails the character. Um, I think uh, it was, uh, I can't remember which one it was, but there's one in particular that I think he really nails it off the top of my head. But uh, but I'm but i I'm going to give it to... Uh, it gets a bit of a cheat. I'm going to give it to Terrence Young and Ken Adam, the production designer, because I think this film is so influential to what we have come to know uh, from Hollywood production design and from, mm-hmm. from action movies. Um, even down to the, the thing we always joke about, the abandoned factory that's still running. Uh, it just feels like all that stuff comes from Bond movies. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And it's just, it's so heavily influential that it's it's hard not to talk about it uh and my score is just a little bit lower than yours uh 7.25 uh and i'm gonna stick with that because i find the pacing at times a bit sluggish okay and uh it's uh but even though i I do enjoy it and it's it's a hell of a debut for a character uh not a debut for connery but what an impact he had and what an impact the whole thing had and uh it's it's uh, still a it's still even with some of that sluggishness in there. It's still an incredibly entertaining movie, and uh, we oh, yeah. would yeah. recommend yeah, to yeah. anybody to check it out. So, all right, we're going to take a short break. We're going to come back and do some more English uh, talking about English filmmakers and English people and 
really getting her ankle foul on this week. Right? Yeah, right. All right, we're going to be back with a Frenzy from 72, 10 years later. We'll be back right after this. Lovely. La, 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 Inside joke for me that song in this movie. Christ, I haven't heard that one, and I couldn't tell you how long. <laughs> yeah, but you haven't. Oh, <laughs> uh, thirty years old that song. How about that? How's that? How's that make you feel? <laughs> uh, eh, indifferent. <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah, there's a great use of the word "lovely" in the uh, in the movie. Uh, it is la la lovely. Yeah, it is uh, uncomfortable too. Lovely. Lovely. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Frenzy, 1972, directed by one Alfred Hitchcock. You may have heard of him. You may not have. I don't know. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. He, he's, he's on the periphery. Yeah. So this one, uh, serial murder is strangling women with the tech necktie. The London police have a suspect, but he is the wrong man. <gasps> so In a Hitchcock movie? Yeah. Hitchcock loved the wrong man thing. Uh, yes. Uh, which... You know, is it? It plays to I think base instincts of any human being. You know, to be accused of something you didn't do and everybody be convinced—that's a—that's a terrible thing and a, a very much a fearful thing. I think for most people, uh, most people never get themselves in that kind of situation. But I think if you were wrongly accused of anything, it would uh, drive you mad. So it leads to great drama on screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, Todd picked this one, so I'm going to jump in here and start talking about it. Um, this one's got. Some fun actors in there. John Finch. Uh, yeah. Who oddly was offered the Bond role and turned it down uh, at some well, point. Well, he kind of, uh, yeah, I, he was never, I could never really see him in that respect. Although, I mean, the closest that he really came to doing anything like Bond would have been like the final program that we yeah. did on the show. Yeah. Um, I mean, but he, he's, I mean, he's great here. Yeah. Uh, I think, and he, you know, the jacket that he's wearing with the leather patches on it is fantastic. Yeah, he's a very interesting actor. He's he's both at times, I really enjoy him, and at times he feels very stiff. Yeah, yeah, you could see that. Yeah, I could see that being the case. He he does um, the one thing that he does really really well uh, is this uh, this sort of sharp cynicism. Yes, he's always had a, a knack for, it, and I, I think he really brings that to the fore in this one. He really does. Yeah, this uh, one he's almost sarcastic with his cynicism. Yeah, 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 yeah. But he's uh, he's an alcoholic. He's yep. uh, he works in a bar. He's, he's, he's kind ha- of a gad about. Yeah, he's a, a sad he's sack. Kind of lifetime loser type of deal. Yeah. one of those yeah, type yeah. of characters. So he has all of the qualities that lead the wrong man accusations that lead it to be, you know, a very strong hunch. 
Yeah. Especially yeah. for well, yeah, he's, he's a slightly shady everyman, right? Yeah. Especially for our chief inspector in this film, uh, Alec <laughs> McCohen, who McCowan. He almost McCohen. owns this movie. Yeah, he almost does. I think he's in Never Say Never Again as well. <laughs> oh, there you go. So. <laughs> Going back to that, our films are kind of tied together this week. Man, there's a lot of mesh in here. Yeah, Baby baby Foster. Baby Foster is in here <laughs> as Robert Rusk. Uh, Bob's your uncle. Uh, Barry Foster. No, not Baby Foster. Uh, Barry Foster's in here. And I was telling Todd before we started recording the show, this is one of those performances that can kind of stick with an actor. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to say anything more in case you haven't seen. Well, no, I, I think you have to discuss it, right? Because you have to. It happens early enough on. Yeah, but, uh, you got to know that uh, Barry Foster's playing the heavy here, the the necktie murderer. Yeah, and uh, in Hitchcock fashion, he's given you both storylines. He's given you the yeah. wrong man storyline, and he's given you the the bad guy storyline. So he gives both of his leads uh, some juicy moments. Uh, but in also Hitchcock fashion, I think he enjoys the bad guy elements more than the good guy elements, which kind of mm-hmm. speaks to his, you know, the Hitchcockiness of himself, which he was always kind of obsessed with his, you know, his obsessions, which that's why they're called obsessions, I guess. I don't know why I said that sentence, but whatever. <laughs> um, but he definitely, you can tell there's a, there's a bit more of a fondness for the Barry Foster character in a weird way than there is for the John Finch character. Uh, it's not overt, but it's there. I think Hitch always liked people who were challenged. Uh, and I think he knew that that led to great storytelling. And that's what made Hitchcock Hitchcock. And that, and then also his camera, which he, I think, you know, is always a participant in the goings-on. And I think that's what made Hitchcock films kind of unique. Right? I think they 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 always kind of work because his camera... Uh, and you've heard us talk about Brian De Palma on the show more than Hitchcock, but Brian De Palma is clearly the the guy that probably is the most influenced by Hitchcock, mm-hmm. even though John Carpenter definitely is and a few others. I mean, you can't talk about the opening of Halloween and not think of Hitchcock a little bit as well. Um, but, you know, the, the camera as a character, uh, when I think of Hitchcock movies, that's one of the things I think about. Uh, it's almost like a God's eye view. And almost like a commentary on humanity. Mm-hmm. And, of course, it builds suspense, right? And uh, he's known for set pieces and stuff. And he, he this one doesn't have a whole lot of set pieces, I think. Of course, I guess London being the whole set piece itself. Yeah. And this yeah, is yeah. him going back to London after spending some years in America. And having a few duds, right? I think he did Topaz before this, which isn't as bad as everybody makes it out to be. I don't think I've ever seen Topaz. It's not as bad as everybody. People always talk about how boring and terrible it is. It's not that bad. Uh, but he had, he had done the birds, right? He had done the birds yeah. and he had done uh, North by Northwest and yep. a few other things. And, you know, he was still doing really, in my opinion, solid films. And he wanted to go back and do this. And in this film, he gets an opportunity to kind of go uh, whole hog, as we say here in the South. And uh, get get down into it a little bit. Get down to the sleaze a little bit. So you you have some nudity here. The movie actually opens with some nudity, uh, and also one of those very Hitchcockian type of shots where he flies under the London Bridge and yeah, and uh, you know he he starts big and then comes down small. He's he's always had. He, it's like that God's eye view. It's almost like looking at ants or something. Yeah. Well, I think uh, you know I I don't for me at least from the start. It doesn't really feel like a Hitchcock movie with that long helicopter shot over no, London. It feels very, 
and it almost and feels the, like an Elvis movie. <laughs> yeah, right. And the the score really accentuates that because it sounds more yeah like triumphal than appropriate like to a, a thriller. Fifties Hollywood the, or something. Yeah. Yeah, but the movie also, in a lot of ways, feels like you know, obviously Hitch is finally getting to cut loose and indulge his proclivities a lot more graphically mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, in both the crimes and the, in the language. You know, characters talk explicitly in this movie about sex and rape. Yes, uh, the first victim that we see is naked. Yes, uh, and there's the mix, th- this mix throughout the movie of this you know explicit violence uh, and nudity uh, that you know it carries throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a lot of ways, I, I always think of when I think of frenzy, I think of uh, how giallo esque it is. Yes, uh, because it's very much playing in that uh, in that uh, category. Well, that's another um, thing. I have to feel like Hitch by this point. You know, he he was a film fan, so I have to believe that Hitch at this point had seen some of the Italian giallo films had seen he had to have, yeah. some of the things that inspired him and, uh, or that he inspired, I should say. And, uh, I think he, it was his way of saying, you know, Hey, wait a minute. You know, I, I can do this. I can do this mm-hmm. even better than you can do this. Not, not, not with a lot of bravado. Cause I don't really think of hitch that way, but certainly with a level of, Hey, I've been doing this a long time. These young whippersnappers think they got it on me. Mm-hmm. I'll show you. And mm-hmm. and there is a bit of a fetishism to this the violence in this that is yes. that is certainly inspired or well not inspired. Well, I don't know if it's inspired by Gialli, but it it certainly feels inspired by Gialli in some way. It well, it certainly yeah, it, it has ties to it whether or not they're they're uh, overt yeah. Is, uh, is something that you could argue, and then the nudity is fetishized big time. It's it's usually either a woman being attacked or a woman that's already dead. Yeah. Uh, there's really yeah. not any in between there. Uh, the rape scene is is pivotal, and yet uh, it, it's very important to the movie, but it's also very sleazy, very dark. Uh, well, and and one of the things about the nudity is that you know these are not. The, the characters themselves are not um, are not very glamorous in any way. You know, everything and the, the settings and everything else, they, it looks and feels real. Uh, there's this hard edge to everything. Um, the, the, like, uh, the movie almost feels gutter level in a lot of ways. And, and the, the, the women are not, you know, like, they're not these chippies. They're like, you know, over 30. They look real. Uh, yeah. They yeah. look like actual women. Yes. Um, which I think is something that Hitch was leaning toward toward the back end of his career because he had a fascination with a certain type of woman for many years. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll put it this way: the women in this are not Kim Novak. No, they're not. Okay, or not. Grace Kelly for that matter, or Janet Lee. Oh yeah, or yeah. anything like that. They are more Janet. These Lee. are they, these are somebody you would walk past on the street. This Absolutely is Hitch's 100%. version of milf porn. Yeah. Right. <laughs> 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 to make a joke about it, but no, in all seriousness, all they feel like real women. They feel like like Barbara Lee Hunt, the rape victim. She, I, I, I think she's gorgeous, but she's gorgeous because she's natural. Anna Massey, the Babs Milligan character, I also find fascinating. I've, I found her attractive, and it's because she seems like a real woman to me. And I think some of that stuff. It, it's funny that you bring that up because some of that stuff is what I like the most about this movie. Outside of John Finch, really, nobody in the movie really feels 
uh, like a like a big star. Like they don't have mm-hmm. the looks. Like they feel like this feels. I don't know if you know. I don't want to tie it back to the gutter level comment, but it does feel like real people in a weird way, uh, and real London in a real weird way. And I think it's what he was going for. I mean, he's here's a here's a director who had worked with big time Hollywood stars, beautiful people, and Cary Grant, Jimmy Stewart, Kim Novak, mm-hmm. Janet Lee, you know, all these great looking people, male and female. It's his way to kind of go back and you know, kind of get these kind of disheveled blue collar for lack of a better word, uh, English people involved. And it, yeah. it's, it's kind of fun. Well, and it makes, it also makes for the, the, the movie to have to feel a lot more intimate. It does. Um, it you does. know, even when he's, he's not really, I mean, there's only a couple of, uh, set pieces in the, in the movie. Yeah. Um, and they, they feel, I mean, they, you, he really, he gets everything out of them. Yeah. He possibly can. I think Hitch also, you know, his fetish, his fetish is coming alive here too with food. Um, because I, I, if I remember, and I could be wrong about this and I'm just going to say it outright, but I, if I remember, I've read some books on Hitch over the years. He loved the food he loved, yeah. uh, but he didn't divert from that menu very often. Like he wasn't a, he, as, as portly as he was and kind of heavy. He loved what he loved. He didn't like uh, a lot of fancy dishes. And if I remember correctly, some of that plays into this because you have the gourmet wife, the wife that wants to be the gourmet cook, or she's just doing it for a hobby, who's trying all <laughs> kinds of things. And the poor uh, detect- Chief, Chief Inspector Tim Oxford is going through this hell at home where he wants to tell her <laughs> to stop making all this garbage. <laughs> he doesn't want to eat pig's feet and uh, uh, snails and God knows what else. Yeah, uh, yeah. he wants to just have a at one point he's eating a proper British breakfast and there's another guy it's almost a fetishization of that who's just kind of watching him eat dude there's I, I gotta say this because you, you mentioned it uh, the bacon on that cop's English breakfast dish looks positively raw I know I did, I dude. I was watching. I was like, "You fucking cannot be." Oh, come on! Yeah. You got to crisp that shit up a little bit. <laughs> yeah, it yeah, just I looks like, like they carved it right off the fucking pig. Yeah, I like a little bit of crispiness. I don't like it overly crisp. No, no, no. But I'm just saying. I yeah, mean, that just it, looked like it would fucking. It was just nothing but fat and it looked and limp. Grease. Yeah, it looked limp. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> unlike uh, Barry Foster, exactly, who seemed direct most of the time. Barry Foster, he's a guy. He always reminds me of uh, John Pertwee every time I see him. Yeah, Pertwee. Yeah, I can. I get that, no doubt. But yeah, he's uh, he's really good in the movie. Uh, I'm pretty oh, yeah, sure yeah. this is where the saying "Bob's Your Uncle" comes from. This movie, right? Am I wrong about that? Did that come from something else? What, like in the vernacular? Yeah, I've heard it in other movies. I've heard it. In, I've heard it said before. Yeah, you know I've what I'm heard. Saying? I've heard it said before, but I think it's just. A, I think it's just a, a British uh, colloquialism. Yeah. yeah, it might be. But for me, this is the one I remember it coming from the most. I mean, every time I oh, okay. hear it in another movie, I think of Frenzy. Uh, you know, there is that, mate. Bob's your uncle. You know? So. <laughs> I honestly, I never thought about that. Yeah. So, anyway. But it also helps that, you know, the characters, Bob. Well, I think so. I think one of the more interesting things about Hitch when it came to bad guys in movies, Hitch is one of the first ones, to, I, think, I think, to introduce uh, the danger in the mundane. And the guy, you know, the guy who owns the hotel, the guy who owns the fruit stand, which is what uh, uh, Robert Russ, the Barry Foster character, he owns a fruit business. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he's the one who really kind of introduced that it's it's your neighbor who you need to be watching out for. 
It's not, uh, you know, it's not the James Bond bad guy. Right. It's the guy that owns the uh, the fruit stand down the road. Mm-hmm. Or it's the guy that uh, that's the taxi cab driver. You know? Or it's your uncle. Yeah, or Bob's your uncle. That's right. Well, so, that's shadow of a doubt. When, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that one as well, right? I mean, I think he, Hitch always nailed that. Uh, mm-hmm. Or it's mm-hmm. just some random stranger you meet, which is even scary as well, like strangers on a train, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so, you know, I think he was always kind of obsessed by those kind of things. Maybe mistrusting of the human race, uh, I think, comes through in a lot of his films. And uh, obviously, you know, there's been a lot of stories told now about his proclivities for women. And uh, I don't think he was, I don't think, yeah, I don't think he was the kind of guy who cheated on his wife, I don't believe, from what I understand, but was not afraid to bring up his obsessions with his wife. Like, I don't think, I don't know if Hitch ever really dabbled, so to speak. I have never heard that being the case no but i've always heard and read that him and his wife like they enjoyed talking about the female body and the female figure and uh that was i think something that they enjoyed together so i don't know what that is uh but i think she she was understanding of hitch's obsessions which is i think why they had a long marriage and you know, yeah, I think yeah, Hitch, yeah. Hitch's obsessions were more related to film and food <laughs> and cigars, which he loved. So, and we're not going to. Are we going to? Are we doing any Hitchcock impersonations here? I don't know if we're going to be doing those. <laughs> uh, no, I can't do it this uh, morning. They're, they're I tough. Just can't. They're tough. You know, you got to have it. You know, there's this thickness of tongue. Yeah. Yeah, and well, he had a very jolly voice. Yeah, very to match his jolly face. Yeah, and he spoke real sl- slow. Yes, yes. I think part of good, the film. Good evening. Yeah, good evening. I think part of what I was going for with the film was. It's almost Boris Karloff. Yeah, it is. It's, Cor- but, it's Karloff with a, well, no, Karloff had a speech impediment as well. He had a lisp. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, he definitely had a distinct thing. And, of course, we got to bring up the fact that, you know, in the opening uh, crowd scene, you can see Hitch in a couple of scenes, which is always yeah. fun. Because you know, yeah, he always like, got to get his cameo in. He had to get his little cameo in, and uh, it's always fun to see him. This kind of portly English gentleman. <laughs> um, so to kind of get into the story, uh, basically, it is a wrong man film. Um, our sad sack John Finch character, he goes back and sees his ex wife, and his ex wife, she she cares for him, uh, doesn't love him anymore, but she cares for him and worries about him, and it's truly kind of a, it's almost a maternal relationship. Yeah. And she wants to help him out, um, but clearly she has no interest in him being a part of her life anymore. And um, Barry Foster, in this weird way, decides for whatever reason to essentially ruin this man's life. Probably just so in case you know they get on the trail of him, they can you know shut it down and not go looking for Barry Foster at all. They can just arrest the John Finch character, which is very much a movie type way to set things up but i think the the fun in the hitchcock movie comes from a couple things okay so it comes from the the fetishization of women and mm-hmm. the strangulation and all that stuff and maybe even the food but it also comes from there is one great set piece in this movie or at least two moments in this movie that i think are really well done one involves the babs milligan character walking up the steps uh to yes. the barry foster apartment and then the camera again becoming a character. Yeah. And to the potato truck scene. 
Yes. Yeah, yeah. I absolutely love the potato truck scene. Uh, although I gotta ask, does potato does potato dust have a smell? I think it does. You get it, potato dust. Yeah, at one point they uh, are sniffing. Yeah, they're kinda. sniffing something. They're like potato dust. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yeah. I was like, hmm. well, it's it's a heavy starch. Yeah, I guess I guess it would. Earth, kind of an earthy smell, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, um, I love that scene. I love that scene for numerous reasons. I love it because it humanizes the the murderer. Uh, he realizes he's made a big mistake. Uh, and now he has to react to that mistake. Yeah. And in doing so, he makes a bigger mistake. Yeah. And I think that's, again, what Hitch always did well is he was able to use film as this way to kind of comment and build upon suspense and yeah. ideas. Yeah. Well, it's it's funny because that, that entire sequence, it's, you know, it's incredibly tense, but it's also comedic way more of, yeah, overtly comedic than, you know, Hitch normally got with these types of yeah. things. Yeah. And, you know, he uses that in a fairly you know, fairly gruesome and effective way. Like he has to break her fingers yes. <laughs> uh, to get what he's after. Yeah. But, you know, again, as with so much of this movie, it's, you know, it's Hitch, it's Hitchcock, I think being far less subtle mm-hmm. than mm-hmm. he had been pretty much in everything up to this uh, movie. Yeah. Um, and I love, but what, uh, it's just an aside. I love that, uh, that the Barry Foster character picks his teeth uh, with the, uh, the same, uh, pin. Yes, that uh, is the object that uh, he uses the pin all the time. It's great. It, it's yeah. it's a little moment that if you the first time you see the film you might overlook it, but if you watch it again and uh, everything else, you tend to remember that pin almost as yes. much as you remember potentially the rape scene or the fact that nudity is in this Hitchcock movie, yeah. which is typically the thing that the film tends to be remembered for is it's Hitchcock doing nudity, which is is weird to me because. Honestly, I, I I get that that's a big deal, okay? But at the same time, it's really just a Hitchcock movie. Uh, well, I think what it is, I mean, what it is is, is that it's it's the frankness of it. Yeah, it's that it's that you know up until you know when you think of Hitchcock, you think of suspense. When you think of suspense, you think of not going full Magilla. And, you know, yeah. teasing it out rather than just showing it to you. Yeah. I think that that's where the, the kind of, I, I guess, shock for one of a better term. Not going full, uh, ca- not going full cartel. You know? Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Talk about an English breakfast. <laughs> yeah. Right. Oh, a fucking meat and two veg right there, buddy. Um, well, check out that blood sausage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, no, it's, uh, it, I think that's, that's one of the things is that, you know, because, because he's, uh, because partly when you think of suspense, you don't think of nipples, uh, and partly because of the reputation that Hitchcock had, uh, as being more like an old school sort of, uh, yeah. film director that the people don't, I think that's why people kind of like turn their nose up at it a bit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but they certainly don't think of, uh, they certainly don't think first of, uh, you know, tits when they think of a Hitchcock. No, no. Because it's just not, it's not, it's not his, uh, it's not but what he had done. It's, yeah. It's one not, of those things though. He didn't want to. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's one of those things though, where if you see this movie and then you go back and look at his old films, you can see an obsession with breast. Sure. Uh, yeah. but you just don't but it see it was always teased. Yeah. You just don't see the breast. That's yes. the difference. Yeah. And and the reason why this is well, important he shows the shark in this one. Yeah, yeah. The reason why this is important to talk about it sounds kind of devious and like we're sitting around like a couple of dudes talking about a porn movie. But no, 
The reason why this is important is because there is even a fetishization to the way the breasts are shot in this movie. Yeah, it's very important, I think, that the nipple is erect. And I'm trying to be I'm tr- honestly, I'm trying to be as serious about this conversation as I can without giggling no, and snark- but I mean, it, it, being it, snarky. It, 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 but it's important that the the nipple is erect. I think it's important that you see uh, vascular, uh, you see veins in the breast, and I think it's also important that you see the breast. Uh, shaking moving uh potentially for some men and i believe hitch might have been one of this men the shaking of the breast might be the thing that turns them on the most or it could be the erect nipple Hmm. but for any man that's interested in female the female figure there is something about the breast that attracts us and i think that it's very important that he shoots that way now i know from reading an interview with david lynch in lost highway it was very important for him to shoot Patricia Arquette's breast shaking up and down during thrusting of sex. And he, he mentioned the reason why is because that's a thing for David Lynch. Like that is, is it's important to his psychosis. It's important to his sexual healthiness. I can see that. Uh, I can relate to that. Um, I have my own proclivities, uh, as I'm sure most of us do. Um, but I think it's very important that, that that scene is in there and that that's tied to the word lovely and the ugliness of that scene. In other words, I guess I'm saying the rape scene in this is very important uh, in its showing of the level that the Barry Foster character will go, but also showing the level that Hitch would go and showing how ugly that this dynamic is of the male predator on the female, on the meek mm-hmm. female lemur, or not a lemur, but uh, you know what I'm talking about. This, yes, yes, I do. This, this, this weak kind of fawnish character that is kind of, okay, I know I'm in trouble. Because it's a great scene because she, she realizes she's in trouble. Yep. And she's going to try anything she can to get out of it. And she realizes it's going too far. And at some point she's like, she's going to give up. She's like, okay, I'll give you what you want, but not here. Let's go to my place. And she doesn't realize how much trouble she's really in. Like she, she's only 50% aware that things are going to get ugly. Yeah. Well, she knows that things are going to go bad in a certain way. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not bad in the way that they go. They don't go. Yeah. They go the whole way. So, uh, and there's a great moment too, where when, when the Barry Foster character starts to loosen his tie, he first, he moves the pin. And then he loosens the tie. And again, this is what Hitch always did well. And I think how he influenced so many other filmmakers is he gets obsessed with the minutia of it too. So he's giving you close-ups of moving the pin, slicking the pin in the other side of the jacket. Now he's going to give you the close-up of untying the tie knot. And then he's going to cut back to the female character's eyes getting engorged and feared because now she realizes she's in real shit. She's in deep shit. Mm-hmm. She's involved with the, the necktie murderer. Now, I have read some criticisms of the film that she doesn't really fight and that scene and everything else. I don't understand. I mean, she's just been raped. So chances are she's physically exhausted. Mm-hmm. She's She has fought. She fought off the rapist as much as she could. Uh, and now she's now she's just basically a wounded animal. And I think all of that works. As dark as that is to talk about, I think all of that works. Um, and it, 
it's it's a very important scene in the movie. I don't think it's the best scene in the movie, and you know, it's not like it's a no. make or break scene, but I think no. it's a it's a very important scene to the story, and to kind of give you the idea of what Barry Foster's going for his character, um, and to also give you what Hitch is going for. Uh, I think you know, obviously, there's some other really great moments with the Barry Foster character, including the potato truck and a few other moments. Uh, and this movie has a great payoff. It should be said. It ends rather abruptly, but I it's love the way abruptly. it ends. Yeah, I love the way it ends, though. Like it, you know, it's 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 one of those abrupt endings that I'm just like, oh, that's cool. There's a part of me that kind of wants the the bad guy standoff, but there's a part of me that also just kind of wants what happened to happen. Yeah, 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 yeah. So because that seems more real. So this is also hits shooting in London. So it's almost got like a concrete jungle type of feel, like a New York City Scorsese feel. Like you feel like you're part of this urban environment of mm-hmm. moving animals and figures. Well, yeah, and he was—he's he's doing one of his rare uh, non-set bound sort yeah. of uh, things, and I think that works. That works to the strength of the movie. If I had any problem with the movie, honestly, and going back and looking at it, it is a bit padded out. Uh, not not too terrible way. Maybe in just about the same amount of way that Doctor No is. I mean, there are just moments when I feel like. We could get to the point. Um, it's it's a weird criti- it's always a weird criticism for me to make because I don't sit around and write screenplays. If I did, they probably wouldn't be very good. I, I you know I don't feel right always making those comments, but it does feel like there's some fluff in the movie. Like there's some scenes that just kind of yes. hang around. Uh, I think you get everything you need in little moments. Like I don't think there's there's quite a few moments honestly with the Robert Russ character the Barry Foster character uh, toward the back end that are just like you know they're total filler like we know yeah. what he is at this point so yeah. I mean let's move on to the next thing and then there's also maybe one obtuse and strange dinner scene too many with his <laughs> wife yeah yeah although I do I, th- I like the pig's feet scene more because I like when she takes a drink of the margarita. <laughs> and she realizes she doesn't really care for it. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I love those dinner scenes. They're great. Uh, the They're great. Wife. Yeah. Uh, but the first one lasts so long. It's not a bad scene. Don't get me wrong. The first no. dinner scene is great. I love the way he sneaks the food back into the bowl. All that kind of stuff. <laughs> if they had a dog, obviously, he clearly would have given it to the dog underneath the table. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. But I just feel like, you know, when it gets to the pig's feet scene, it's like we, we've done this before. And yes. it just kind of hangs out for a while. Although I do like the the sergeant that's working with him when he, when she asks him if he wants a margarita, and uh, he's looking at her like, "I just want to drink. Just give me a drink of whiskey." Yeah, right. And she goes in and makes None this margarita. Shit. Yeah, she goes in and makes the margarita, which is funny now because you know this is the early seventies, so margaritas would have been seen as this exotic drink, mm-hmm. whereas nowadays they're pretty commonplace, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, 99 cent margarita nights at most restaurants back when you could go to a restaurant for COVID. But this, you know, this, it, it's just interesting, this kind of exotic way she's kind of going about this gourmet stuff and she's kind of pushing this exoticism on her husband while Hitch is kind of pushing his exotic fetishes on us. Now, that seems like a bit of a reach, but I don't, no, I think, don't think, I don't think it is. I think that, no, there's very, there's, there's very little in, uh, in a Hitch movie that's not, thought out you yes. know it may it may not it may be kind of head scratching and i think that certainly this is the case in several moments in yeah. this movie 
uh, but there's never anything that's uh, completely superfluous. I yeah. don't think. I think Hitch always understood, and I I can take or leave Hitch sometimes. I don't. Mm-hmm. I appreciate him. I don't adore him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think he made some really, really great films, and he certainly was very important to cinema. There's no doubt whatsoever. But I think also sometimes I found his films to be a bit stiff and more it's it's kind of the same reactions i have to de palma sometimes although i think for me de palma works more because of the viscerality of de palma films he was able to kind of get more visceral i think that hitch if he would have been allowed to do so would have been totally different and and don't get me wrong i don't think he needed to do that he was visceral without being visceral and I think that's very important to mention that. I think it's very important that we realize that, kind of like Val Luton and other thing else, sometimes it's not it's not what you show, it's how you show it. Mm. And I think Hitch did that really well. But I am not the world's biggest fan of Psycho. I am not the world's biggest fan of uh, some of his other films. Uh, I find problems with a lot of them. Um, I do enjoy this one quite a bit. I do enjoy, uh, oh man, I can't think of the ones off the top of my head. Strangers on a Train is probably my favorite. Uh, Hitch film. Um, I don't know what your favorite is, but that's probably my favorite. I'm not a big fan of Vertigo, uh, although I understand why people love it, and eh. it makes sense to me. But I'm not a big fan of it, and uh, I have some other issues as well with some of his other work. But we're not here to talk about his other work. I'm just saying, Hitch never really struck a chord with me the way De Palma did. But I clearly understand that there'd be no De Palma without Hitch. And no, there wouldn't be. And and I get that. And but sometimes, you know, one man's, you know, poison is another man's treasure, whatever you want to call it, garbage treasure, blah, blah, blah. I don't know what's saying. Bob's your uncle. I don't know what's saying I'm trying to say here. <laughs> but I think one man's meat is another man's poison. Yeah, I think the truth is is that I think I just like the adult themes of De Palma's films more and I than I do the kind of stoic, kind of crisp cleanliness of old school hitch films yeah but that, i mean that's also your your proclivity is that that's you know right. you tend to gravitate towards that that sort of stark and yeah. ugliness that's right uh, and of, that, uh, of a lot of things then that's that's part of what i'm you know the whole review for me is is that film i think hitch always knew and it's funny that we keep calling him hitch but, but i mean that's what everybody <laughs> we're, knows him we're about. asshole buddies yeah we're, we're buddies you know we smack him on the ass every now and then yeah but i think he always knew that film was a visceral experience it wasn't he was able to take movies and make hearts hearts beat faster make uh penises get erect Mm -hmm. make whatever you want to say and i think that's one of the the true powers of movies that we don't talk about enough is that movies and film and the moving image is able to give you emotional and physical responses that's a very powerful medium and i think we in some ways with big commercial movies sometimes, we have forgotten about that. Although, don't get me wrong, I think some of the Marvel movies definitely give me visceral reactions, uh, you know, uh, tears, uh, laughter. Sure. All these things are there. Um, but I think real fear uh, is something that's really hard to do. Um, like, I'm not scared of a Friday the 13th movie, but the idea of being accused of a crime I didn't commit is terrifying. Yes. And Hitch knew how to play that suspense up to the hilt. And I'll give him credit for that till the end of time. Nobody can, I don't think, I don't know if anybody can touch him on that. 
honestly, I think, you know, everybody that has touched him is basically cribbing off him. So I don't really know. I mean, I, you know, I think about the Giallo directors. I think about De Palma. I think about, uh, I mean, De Palma is the one that comes to mind the most. I'm trying to think if there's anybody more in the modern era who reminds me of Hitchcock, but I can't really think of any off the top of my head. Fin- uh, Fincher has some Hitchcockian elements. Yeah. But he's also got some Kubrickian and some other type elements as well. So. Uh, Villeneuve, I think, is a bit, uh, yeah, yeah, a bit taken from uh, from Hitch. Yeah, Enemy, that film I liked a lot a couple of years back, that, that was Prisoners. very Hitchcock. Yeah, oh yeah, Prisoners very much so too. Yeah, but Enemy I liked a lot. Although the very end of that film is so anti Hitchcock, it's ridiculous. But well, there's that. Yeah, yeah, but I but I really enjoyed that film, and it's very Hitchcockian. You are right, and playing with the uh, even with twins and things like that. Anyway, um. That's all I got on Frenzy. I really enjoy going back and looking at it. The acting is really superb. The way it's shot. And uh, again, outside of some some padding, I feel, in the script itself and some scenes I felt like you know could be cut out and we could still be a fine movie, I still think the movie plays really well. And it's a hell of a way to go out uh, as a filmmaker. I mean, a lot of filmmakers don't get to go out with a bang. Uh, right. There, right. There's only a handful that I can really think of off the top of my head that get to go out with a bang. Uh, and some would argue that he's not going out the bank because he's got family plot after this. But again, I would argue that family plot is not, it's not as bad as everybody thinks it is. It's just not as good as frenzy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. And this should have been his last film, but it just, it just yeah. didn't work out that way. So, right. Right. I'll kick it over to you. All right. Uh, not a hell of a lot to add and more or less just kind of, um, amplifying a bit on uh, what a lot of what you've already said but uh so yeah when when the killer's revealed it's it's fairly early on uh it doesn't really surprise us so it, it's brilliant because it eliminates the guessing game uh which is what hit did right and, and it allows him to develop out his themes which are you know uh very much focused on power and emasculation and all that sort of thing uh and that said uh the reveal scene of the killer uh the the uh, Rusk uh, character uh, feels kind of coincidental in some ways, but it also feels unvarnished. Uh, like we said, you know, the victim's not some young buxom chippy, uh, and it also feels, you know, psychotic with the uh, Foster doing his uh, repetition of uh, the word "lovely." Um, so it all feels uh, a bit, uh, a bit odd, a bit grimy. Um, the other thing that the early reveal allows for, uh, is for Hitch to do his, uh, his ticking bomb scenario, um, which is, you know, kind of part and parcel with, uh, just about any Hitchcock movie. Uh, so as he twists the knife, so to speak, he's teasing us out on, uh, if and when the killer will be caught, which leads to obviously the great, uh, the pin sequence, um, in the potato truck. And in fact, it's after the first murder uh that we see that the film starts to feel more traditionally hitchcock but still not traditionally hitchcock uh for example we get uh, we get an extent an extended scene of uh the john finch character taking his uh, sometime girlfriend to a hotel um so i mean yes it leads to something plot wise but it's kind of a long way to get there uh and you know i kind of noticed that you know you and i we didn't really speak too much about john finch at all uh, in this review, uh, seeing as how he's the uh, he's ostensibly the lead. Well, I mean, uh, he's good. At, he's good in the movie, but I think he's just an avatar. Well, he is, but he, he and that's that's kind of what I'm getting. You know, he's he's clearly he's fleshed out as someone we could easily believe is the killer, or it could just be a massive red herring. Uh, he's not a typical Hitchcock professional man. 
um, who are the tended to be the people that uh, that he would want to follow. Uh, he's not nearly as proactive uh, as these uh, characters typically uh, tend to be. Um, but I don't know if you could hear the dog crying in the background. I did. I did. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Son of a bitch. <laughs> uh, so anyway, yeah. But uh, but he is he is very good, even though he doesn't he doesn't completely feel like uh, the actual main character in the movie, uh, even though he is. Um, so Billy Whitelaw shows up, uh, does her patented uh, bitchy ice queen act for a little bit, um, and she's great at doing it as always. Um, the cop characters are, you know, they're self righteously confident, uh, and a lot of what they do in the movie is kind of fish around and make broad generalizations rather than actual detective work, um, because they're meant to be at least partially, I think, comic relief and exposition more than anything else. And I think that we do spend a lot of time with them. Uh, in fact, you know, the inspector, the the uh, McCowan uh, character, uh, he becomes almost the main character at several points because of these extended scenes, and specifically the extended scenes with uh, with his wife, where she's uh, she's cooking dinner for him and he's laying out uh, the case that he's uh, he's going through and the clues that he has, uh, and that he's following uh, following up on. Um, you mentioned the, uh, the, the shot, um, that we get in, uh, in Barry Foster's, uh, house there, uh, which leads to th- this absolutely fantastic shot coming back down, uh, this tracking shot that comes down the flight of stairs backwards, uh, and out into the street. And it's absolutely masterful. It's incredibly elegant and it just, it stuck out to me so much, uh, for how brilliant it was. Um, you know, we don't have to see what we know is going on. We've already, we've already had, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the bluntness of, uh, what the, uh, the foster character gets up to, uh, shown to us previously. So we don't need to see it again. And uh, Hitchcock knows that. Um, and the shot is this particular moment in, in the movie is almost, it's almost melancholy, uh, in the idea that, you know, this this sort of thing is happening right under the entire world's nose because we come out and we come into the street and it's just, you know, life is going on out in the street while there's very quietly uh, a murder happening uh, upstairs in this, uh, in this house. It's really, it's chilling in a lot of ways. Um, speaking of uh, efficiency and uh, masterful uh, craftsmanship in the filmmaker sense, there's the courtroom scene, uh, which is almost a master stroke. Uh, in that sense, it's all done in just about one shot with only like little snippets of dialogue. Uh, and it's not what we expect uh, from this type of film. We don't expect it to get to this uh, point necessarily. Uh, but then, you know, just about none of this is what we, or maybe just me, expect from a Hitchcock film. Um, and we've talked about that at, at length. Um, so the method that the John Finch character has of getting out of stir is a little bit suspect. Uh, which kind of makes me curious as to why Hitchcock would have allowed that piece of the novel to play out at all. Um, but it does allow for a finale that's, uh, a lot more reveal than anything else. Um, it's about as gruesome as anything else in the picture is. Uh, but it really is so underplayed as to be almost non-existent. Uh, and like you said, then the movie, you know, it's very abrupt. The movie immediately ends right after that. Um, 
and it does it subverts uh, what we uh, what we expect from uh, from the movie. Um, whether or not that's uh, whether or not that's the right way to do it, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but it just is really weird. It's uh, it just it 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 stands out for that reason. Yeah. Uh, good, bad, or indifferent. I think it. Uh, I think it comes down to the viewer at that point. You either like it or you at don't. At that point, it would. Yeah. 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 Um, but I, I agree with you. I don't think the, the movie is particularly well paced, uh, in a lot of, uh, ways. And in some ways it is very broad strokes. Uh, but it's also always very interesting somehow, uh, throughout the entire you know thing from, uh, from beginning to end. And I think that's largely a credit to Hitchcock. Uh, I think it's fascinating, uh, in his filmography for me. Uh, and it's a movie that I'm kind of surprised people don't really talk about too much, uh, in his, uh, in his filmography, um, uh, if at all, I mean this and, and like, yeah, when you said Topaz, it was the first time that I'd fucking even thought of the, the title Topaz and mm-hmm. I couldn't tell you how long, yeah. um, but this, yeah, the later stuff in his career, people don't really tend to, uh, tend to speak about too much or if they do, uh, it's kind of as a, um. Uh, a bygone uh, well, sort of guy. It's just to talk. It tends to be to for this film anyway. It tends to be to talk about the nudity, and that's pretty much. Right. And I think that overshadows what is really a pretty strong Hitchcock movie. Oh, it is. It is a, a very strong Hitchcock movie. Yeah, uh, I I put it up as one of my favorites of his uh, personally. Yeah. Um. I mean, you you were talking earlier about your favorites. I mine for mine for me, it's a kind of a three way tie. Uh, between uh, the birds, um, North by Northwest, and uh, Foreign Correspondent oh, uh, are my three favorites. Yeah, that, uh, one, that, one, that, one, one, that last one came out of left field for me. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say uh, as you were going along, I was like, okay, so you're a later Hitchcock guy, and uh, and then you know an early one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, but uh, but yeah, no. Um, <laughs> I really haven't got a hell of a lot else that I can add to. Uh, I think you've covered pretty much all the ground you can cover with this movie, uh, or as much as needs uh, to be covered. I do think that's one that uh, the people should seek out um, because it is a Hitchcock that we are not used to, uh, a side of him uh, that uh, we don't see done as starkly as it is here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I find that really fascinating in a lot of ways. Uh, and I'm, yeah, it's pretty much all my notes. I, I'm gonna stop talking because I'm losing my voice like fucking crazy now. Yeah, I hear your voice uh, going there a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because foreign correspondent, that's like, uh, man, that's like, what is that? Like nineteen forty? Yeah, it's in the forties. Who? I just looked it up. It's nineteen forty. Oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah. And I'm a big fan of Rebecca, which is also the same year. Okay. But the lady vanishes is really good. Um, Thirty nine steps, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got a lot of good stuff in those early years, man. Oh God, yeah. And uh, but yeah, I was looking here that uh, yeah, the North by Northwest and uh, the other one. What was the other one you mentioned that you liked? Birds. Birds. Yeah, those are late cycle, right? So those are fifty nine and sixty three. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and like I said, you know, Marnie, Torn Curtain, Topaz. Those are the three films before this. And I don't think any Marty of those, I never cared for. Yeah, I don't I don't love it. Um it's, it's, speaking of a Sean Connery movie. Yeah, Sean Connery. <laughs> oh Marty. <laughs> and a lot of people don't really like Torn Curtain. I I like Torn Curtain. I thought it was pretty good. So But yeah, I mean, you know, Strangers on Trains my jam. And uh there's mostly 
it's mostly the older hitch stuff that I really like. 39 Steps, Strangers on Train. Um, uh, even Notorious in there I like quite a bit. So, Anyway, uh, Foreign Correspondent, though. I do like that one as well. That's a good one. I love it. Um, have you ever seen The Lady Vanishes? You should check out The Lady Vanishes. Uh, I have not. You should uh, definitely check that one out. Yeah. All right. Uh, so that is the big show. No, it's not. We got to do MVT's Maker Breaks. Um, MVT <laughs> Maker Breaks. Way ahead of yourself. Oh, wow. Maker Break for this film for me is the potato truck. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm trying. I was on the potato truck and I was out of here. <laughs> kicking that body out the back. Talk about a moment of visceral reaction. When that body falls out of the back of that truck. Mm-hmm. It's pretty gross. Um. Uh. Ooh, man. <laughs> MVT. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Yeah. Well, I'm trying to think of what I would go for for the MVT. I mean, it's. I want to go hitch, but I don't know if I'd ever be able to give it to Barry Foster again. Mm-hmm. And I would definitely be able to give it to Hitch again. You know what I mean? Good point. Yeah. Uh. Yeah, I mean, Hitchcock is is certainly an MVT here, but I'm going to go with Barry Foster. I really think his performance is this charismatic, awful uh, character with mother issues uh, and tie issues is pretty good. His performance in that rape scene from the beginning to the end is pretty pretty amazing. And uh, unfortunately for him, maybe in some ways uh, polarizing. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, my score for the movie, even though I do think it's kind of a little bit padded out and everything, I still think it's a solid. Uh, this is a solid eight out of ten. I, I, I really Ooh. enjoy Frenzy. Okay, yeah, I really enjoy it. I've always enjoyed it, and uh, continue to do so. Maybe, probably like it a lot more now as I've gotten older than I did in the uh, early days. Okay, cool. Come to come to appreciate it. Yep. All righty. Uh, okay, so make or break for me. Yeah, it's got to be the potato truck scene uh it's as well orchestrated as any suspense scene in any of hitchcock's movies ever uh and it really is the standout here um and uh that's make or break mvt uh i'm gonna go uh pretty standard on this one and i'm gonna go with hitch okay um i think that uh yeah i mean this is this is fascinating to me to watch him kind of uh be allowed the the leeway to really kind of uh, put his stuff up on screen a little more um, plainly than uh, than he would have done in the past, uh, and I really just I find that uh, amazing. And it, 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 technically, he's as brilliant here as he he ever was. Mm. Um, even though this you know it, this is both a Hitchcock movie and not a Hitchcock movie in a lot yeah. of ways, which yeah. we've gotten into. Uh, and score for me, I'm I'm you know a bit under yours. Uh, I'm a seven point two five out of ten. Nice. Uh, I still think that, yeah, this is, uh, this is really good. Um, and it's definitely, uh, yeah, it's definitely one that I would love to see, uh, more people, uh, get into and, uh, and kind of discuss cause I think that there's a lot to unwrap, uh, in the, uh, in the whole thing. So nice. Yeah. So now I can officially say that is the big show. Now I'm done with you. Yeah. <laughs> I've done my deeds. <laughs> All right. We hope everybody enjoyed the show. Next week, uh, we're coming back with some uh, uh, some Italian fun. You want to talk yeah. about what you picking? You're picking? You picking? Uh, my nose. <laughs> yes. um, well, yeah, clearly. I'm doing my ass over here. So. <laughs> you got to pull them dingleberries out, man. Oh, man. There's that pain pleasure paradigm you yeah. get going on. Ooh. Um, Don't want those to get hard. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh-uh. 
so yeah, no, uh, I picked uh, Lucio Fulci. Uh, we, I wanted to get him back on the show, obviously. Yes. Uh, and what better horror movie to go with <laughs> than Four of the Apocalypse? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> there's that. Uh, it's this is another one of those movies that um, I've seen before, obviously, and it just is is fascinates me uh, how how much it is what it is, but is totally a Lucio Fulci movie. Yes. Uh, even though it's, it's really, it, it's fucking bizarre is the best way that I could to describe it, uh, right this second without getting into the details of it. It's interesting. Um, cause I, I'd reached out to Todd and told him what I was going to pick. And every now and then you pick things and you think, Oh, we've, we've covered it. Surely. Mm-hmm. But we have not. So I, I've reached. I'm I told, Well, yeah. I, I was I was sitting there and I was thinking to myself, ah, and you know, in a couple hours I'll text Sammy and let him know what I'm picking because I I was already set on for the apocalypse, and then you came to me with your pick and I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> yeah. that's bizarre. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if we should do that one now. And I was yeah. like, why not? Let's do it. Yeah, fuck it. Um. So he picked that, and I picked uh, a staple, really. Of the uh, genre that we'll be talking uh, that that I love, which is um, Django from uh, from uh, Sergio Corbucci, which is one of those movies where it just feels like we would have covered it by now, and uh, oddly we have not. Mm-hmm. So kind of getting into the now we're gonna yeah kind of getting into the spaghetti world again. It's always fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I enjoy that. I enjoy that world so much. It was time to go back. Time to, it's always time to go back. Yeah, mm-hmm. get a little marinara in there, as Will would say. <laughs> um, so that'll be the show next week: Django and uh, the Four of the Apocalypse. So, what a title, Django of the Apocalypse. I mean, that's easy. There you go. All right, uh, that's all we got. With that, I will say adios. Adios. Thanks for listening. You can find the gentleman at ggtmc.com, and you can email the gentleman. Midnight Cinema at gmail.com. 